Welcome to the podcast. It's dedicated to making you a faster cyclist. The Ask a Cycling Coach podcast presented by Trainer Road. I'm Coach Jonathan Lee. We have with us Cannondale and Trainer Road's Amber Pierce. Good morning, everyone. We also have with us Orange Seal and Specialized Alex Wild. Hey, friends. And we have Cliff Bar Racing and Pete Mor- or, and Trainer Road's Pete Morris. <laughs> Pete Morris going, is Pete Morris. <laughs> Presented by it. me. <laughs> it's good to have everyone here. I'm excited for this one. Uh, today we're going to answer more of the questions you submitted at trainerroad.com slash podcast. Go there right now. Submit the questions you have. Even those burning of all desire questions, throw them in there. Even if they're ridiculous, hopefully we can answer them, like maybe in the rapid fire section. Uh, also, I just want to give everybody a quick heads up in terms of what we'll be doing here today. We're going to be covering and taking advantage of all of your amazing racing knowledge that we have here amongst the, the three of you. And we are going to talk about how to read a race like a pro and a whole lot of different races. We're going to get into like specific anecdotes, but then we're also going to get into just general, like theoretical concepts around this whole thing too. It's going to be good. We're going to talk about how to recover between a races. Do you need to recover? How much time? Uh, what should be considered an A race or a B race, all that stuff. That'll be fun since a lot of us are looking ahead for the year. Maybe events are already being canceled. So we're kind of shifting around plans. It's a good time to do it. And then we're also going to talk about how to switch your perspective and have a paradigm shift with injuries. And instead of just looking at it as a downside, how you can use that to actually become faster. So and we're going to cover even more questions than that. So, but first go to trainerroad.com sign up, get faster. All the people sending in questions here, they're doing it. They're getting faster. And that's the whole point. And check us out on Instagram. If you go to Instagram.com or Instagram on your app, whatever it is and find trainer road, we post tons of stuff up there and you can see all the different people that are training with trainer road, find some friends on there as well. Uh, we're always sharing their workouts and people are sharing their ramp test improvements and successful workouts and failures too. And we all celebrate all of it. It's a great spot to do it. Um, also you can follow all of us also forgotten is Pete on Instagram, Amber Malika. And then we also have Alex wild and you should follow Alex. We've been talking about this. We need to get him up to 10,000 followers. So everybody listen to this, go follow Alex. Uh, he shares a Q and a on Mondays and then also shares a bunch of stuff. He's even been sharing some stuff leading up to this podcast kind of content specific to it. So check that out. Uh, okay. And the final thing, successful athletes podcast. Y'all got to listen to this one. This latest episode is people are absolutely loving it. It's with Michael Brophy. He's from the East coast. He's a PT. He trains. He was not a morning person, but he found ways to do it. And he talks about all the mechanisms that he uses to make himself a train in the morning, uh, really logical and really helpful stuff. It was great. And he's also five Watts per kilogram and does that with being a father and everything else. And we talk about how he does all that. And he uses group workouts out basically every single day. Uh, and he does it with his friends and they have an accountability system. It was super cool. So check it out. It's episode 36 of the successful athletes podcast. And if you want to be on that podcast, just go to trainerroadcom slash S A P. Even if you want to listen to it, you can find easy ways to listen to it there. It'll send you to whatever app you want to use. Then you can enter and share your story there as well. So that's trainerroadcom slash S A P or search for the successful athletes podcast on anything that you use to listen to podcasts with. Um, okay. Pro tip from Anne. This was submitted. Uh, it's not a question. Uh, Anne says, hi, trainer road. I actually have an answer, not a question. A few weeks ago, someone asked a question about underutilized features of trainer road. And I wanted to share one way I use the calendar to get even more out of trainer road. Since trainer road fills the space of coach in my training, I use the annotations feature to build in reminders, pointers, and motivation for myself. Here's some quick examples. One, a certain amount of weeks before an event, I write in reminders to recheck my goals. I like that. That's a good one to do. Yeah. 
Uh, two, if I did something I'm particularly proud of, I write it in to celebrate it. There's value in that, right? Amber of actually like writing that. down things yeah. rather than just keeping it up upstairs. Yeah. You kind of think that you're mentally taking note of it, but when you actually take the time to physically write it down and engage multiple senses in acknowledging this thing and celebrating it, I just, I love that. It's wonderful. That's what builds confidence is celebrating every victory, big and small. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's awesome. Uh, next one, if something resonates with me from the podcast, I might write it in alongside a hard workout that is coming up. Good one. And then she says, since I'm a woman, I also find it helpful to annotate my periods. So I know when to be nicer to myself. If RPE is through the roof, Heck yeah, that's awesome. Another thing with that too, is I I've, uh, just recently, and I can't remember your name. I apologize. I spoke to you on Instagram and you were talking about how you use this with your shift work to not only to basically like plug in when you were going to, cause they got their schedule three months at a time. So then they were able to look at it and it's revolving shift work. So it's like nights and then it's mornings and then, and it shifts through and they were able to plan all of that out and put it in an annotations. And then that really helped them have more realistic expectations for what their training was going to be like long-term. Uh, so it can be really helpful to, to throw that in. Um, so Anne says the annotations really have endless uses and can definitely double as a training journal of sorts. In addition to, to being a great way to track injuries and travel and the color coding makes it so nice. You can change them, uh, to be whatever color you want. Um, with that, it's pretty cool. I hope this helps someone else out there who is listening. Thanks for all you do. Thanks, Anne. Appreciate it. Should have had Anne on as a host today. I love mm-hmm. this feature. I mean, I, I look sometimes like <clears throat> past year, like look back at what I was doing in January last year and the commentary is super helpful. You know, it's like on that key day, it's like you can see how stoked you were or, you know, I, I write comments after every ride, even if it's just as simple as legs felt good or, you know, struggle today or something. And then sometimes it can be like three paragraphs of information of just mm-hmm. like if I go back to it later, it's like, I was proud of that day kind of thing. Like yesterday I, I rode the, my accelerations on the trainer and I was texting you, Jonathan. I was a little worried about like erg mode versus like resistance mode. I'd never done them on the trainer before. And I was like, oh, I'm going to give up something cause I'm not going to be able to hit the power. But I was stoked to find like the right resistance mode to hit those. Mm-hmm. So can you share what that was? Cause somebody already <laughs> is typing that question in on the forum. I just heard them typing somewhere. So, um, uh, <laughs> What, what was that? And first of all, maybe you can share like what the power targets were and what trainer you were on. Yeah. Uh, so I run my Epic hardtail on a Ceres H3. And so the workout is two and a half hours total. And then for the first 90 minutes, every 10 minutes, you're doing a 45 second seated acceleration. There's not really a power target to it, but I've been doing them long enough that I start around four or 500 watts. And then by the end of the 45 seconds, I normally cap at like just over 800. And the goal is to be kind of one gear behind what you want to be. So you're like struggling to push over that gear. You're developing torque and you're also developing just seated power. Um, so for this one, I was worried about doing it on the trainer because I could put in power targets, but we've talked before about how a trainer sometimes can lag to respond and it wouldn't be necessarily linear. So I talked to Jonathan and we went the route of, um, turning it off for 45 seconds and putting it in resistance mode and kind of finding the right number. Um, on mine, it showed one through nine and I found that I could do six and then shift to, Mm. to keep the resistance where I wanted. So I could just flip it between the two. Um, I did make the mistake of doing it on the iPad instead of the computer. So I didn't have the hot key to swap them. (laughs) So my little hack for this time was to run my Garmin side by side. 
so that it would capture those 45 seconds that I was accidentally pausing trainer road. But sure. I was just super, super happy to be able to get it in on the trainer. And I, I texted Jonathan and Nate this, but the fans make a huge difference. I know we talk about this a lot, but I had never done a workout like this with that, with proper fans. And mm. I didn't feel like overheated at any point, which is never an experience I've had on the trainer before. Yeah. You really can't underemphasize or you can't overemphasize enough how important having sufficient cooling is. Like oh, it absolutely. feels like a lot, <laughs> but then when you train through it, you're like, okay, never mind. It's okay. Right, Pete? <laughs> yeah. It's the same as when you go outside, it's the, the litmus test is if you're cold, when you're standing there getting ready for your ride, you're probably properly dressed. If you're yeah. really cold when you're on the trainer, when you start your ride, you're probably adequately uh, fanned, I guess you could say if you're, if you're warm in the first 10 minutes, you did it wrong. Probably in yeah. both scenarios <laughs> in long rest intervals, I get cold again. Like, yeah. uh, and that's a sign that I'm in the spot where I need to be. Um, we and actually have an episode in the workout oh. when you're like soaked. Uh-huh. Like, yeah, we have an episode of the Science of Getting Faster podcast. We're so excited to launch that. It's coming soon. Um, I won't give you a specific date, but uh, it is coming soon. Um, but I was going through and in the editing process for one of the episodes recently, we actually talked to Dr. Chris Minson, who is an expert and kind of like the expert actually on heat training on basically like endurance performance in hot conditions and thermoregulation and, and how heat affects all this. So, uh, we talked to him all about heat training. It's a great episode. And he actually talks about, because we asked him like, what was the ideal temperature you, you would, you would use for athletes. And he was mentioning that, you know, that that's probably a range and, and it depends for each athlete. But I believe that he mentioned that they selected 55 degrees, which is what they were using, uh, in terms of ambient conditions as like a starting point, I believe for some sort of a control group or something, Chris, I'm probably totally screwing that up. I apologize, <laughs> but, um, I remember 55 degrees. So, uh, but it's a, it's a, it's super cool episode. I can't wait to hear it. And it's really good to hear for you, Alex, that the fans were helping. Cause last time you and I did a workout together, it's really hard workout and you didn't have sufficient fans. You were flooding your room with sweat and you couldn't hit your power targets. So it's good to hear that it's changed. <laughs> yeah. Night and so. day. Uh, and one, one quick point that I want to make, you mentioned that you have the Epic hardtail on the trainer and not the Epic. And yeah. I want to make sure that that extinction, ex, uh, distinction is made clear because yeah. if you try to put the Epic on some trainers because of the brain, it doesn't fit very well. So just a heads up for everybody with that, just cause it has more going on in the back. Um, yeah. and same thing actually for the scalpel can be problematic, uh, to cover the Cannondale side for Amber because of the fact that it has that AI offset. So it changes its shape a little bit in that rear triangle mm -hmm. and that can cause a problem with some trainers. Um, I've heard at least because the smart trainer kind of sticks in where the wheel would, but it doesn't mm. do so at like a normal size or position. Yeah. So, and to compensate for that, I did set up my, and I always do my Epic hardtail with the same fit measurements as my full suspension. So in theory, it's, it's like training on the full suspension in terms of touch points. And that's important for me. I've, I think I've mentioned this on many podcasts, but I like to train and do intervals and do everything on the bike setup that I'm going to race. Um, mm -hmm. just from, a number geeks perspective. It's like, I want to know that on race day, I'm putting out the power in the same position that I race in. I'm going to go off script even more Alex between <laughs> the two, because hardtail and full suspension, super common question that we get on the forum into this podcast, all that stuff. And particularly with the, with, with the Epic, it's kind of, uh, the Epic feels like a hardtail to a lot of people because of the mm -hmm. brain. 
which one or when would you ride the hardtail? Like what races would you ride the hardtail at? It's hard. Um, I, I say it's a good, good problem to have, but specialized makes such a good full suspension. Like my epic full suspension with a dropper, with axis, with a power meter and everything that I need to perform on race day is under 22 pounds with pedals. So it's like mm. at that point, it's like there's no longer a weight argument to be had. So my my sadly, my hardtail pretty much comes out for like a mostly road short track course. Like I think like Benelli mm. Park. Like mm. I would ride a hardtail there, but I mean, yeah. 95 to 99% of the time I'm on my full suspension just because Specialized produces such a good XC bike that it's hard to justify a hardtail. And I think most of us average Joes and Janes, is that the term that we would use? Um, uh, I think most of us average folks are <laughs> faster on a full suspension just because we get a little bit more comfort and that helps us stay a little bit fresher later on throughout the race. So, yep. and it's the same thing that I have with the dropper post. People look at a section and they say, I don't need a dropper post for this section. And then I always argue that I guess you, I, my guess is that you could go two to three seconds faster on this section with a dropper post just cause you don't need it. Doesn't mean it mm. won't make you faster. And then same with full suspension. A lot of people are always like, well, the downhill is not that technical. I don't need a full suspension, but it's like, with the Epic, it's anything that's not like smooth, like road or smooth gravel, you know? And at that point, it's like any braking divots, anything like that, the Epic full mm. suspension is just going to be much more efficient. It's going to keep your tires on the ground. It's going to make it so you don't have to work on the uphills. Like overall metabolic efficiency is going to be higher on a full suspension. Yeah. So it's not just I looking at like, oh, there's big rocks on the descent. I need a full suspension. It's the same thing as the minimum effective dose for carbs where people are like, well, yeah, you technically, technically don't need it. Yes. But that doesn't mean that you are, uh, that's the fastest choice. If you were to take in more carbohydrate, if you were to have that dropper post, you'd probably be faster. So Absolutely. a fat, a fat tire crit for Epic rides, probably not going to have to worry about a dropper post, but everything else might as well. So, Arrow, bro. um, <laughs> perfect. Uh, Greg, let's go to, yeah, yeah, exactly. Let's go to Greg's question. He says, I can't thank you all enough. The product, the content, the podcast, the support have helped me tremendously. Shout out to our customer support team. They're amazing. Thanks for all you do. Everybody, um, says I'm getting faster every day. Thanks to you. And after you answered my last question, I'm considering trying some races for the first time this year. Good to hear. Uh, Greg says there is a 60 mile gravel route. I've been wanting to do. I have a random day off. It is going to be nice out above 40 degrees in New York. And I want to ride it. I got everything together for the morning while listening to the podcast and you all talking about junk miles. And then this horrible feeling came over me thinking about junk miles being anything that will impact my training. <laughs> I'm currently in the base phase of a rolling road race plan, preparing for a 100 mile ride with my friends in June. I'm still new to bike training and I have this dreadful feeling that somehow getting out and pushing myself on my bike is going to snowball into me losing 15 watts on my FTP. So what is the cost of a 60 mile hard effort if I miss or struggle on a sweet spot ride the next day? Am I justified in feeling bad about riding my bike if I don't schedule it into my plan? Or is it okay to get out and have fun every once in a while, even if it has some impact on a training ride? Uh, thanks so much for all your help. So we definitely wanted to cover this one because sometimes, uh, believe it or not, we're far from perfect and we'll communicate something. And then looking back at it, we'll think, oh man, we probably could have done a better job at communicating this to all edge cases or different perspectives. And this is definitely one of the cases. 
So we talked a lot about this in the planning meeting, um, and there are a lot of different things we want to cover. Uh, Pete, actually, do you want to cover kind of maybe an unanticipated side of this first? Yeah, and <clears throat> this is something that I like to do. So as soon as I read this, it really resonated with me inside because I absolutely need something to look forward to. Um, and I like to plan and wrap my head around what I'm getting into and lay out my stuff and pick a, pick a strategy, go try to execute it. And like, that's very fun for me. And I, most of the time in my life, that's a race, uh, this past, uh, little while now, uh, it hasn't been races. <laughs> so, um, I need that same sort of thing where, uh, the, the 60 mile effort is kind of irrelevant. It's for me, the enjoyment is everything from now leading up to that point. And then like, as soon as the ride's finished, then I'm, I'm happy. I, I put everything, uh, I lined everything up and put it through its paces and here I am. And so for me, that's a huge part of things I like to do. Um, and it doesn't have to be riding. Like I like to do that with trips and, you know, the garage and random stuff like that. So it don't, don't rob yourself of anything that is enjoy enjoyable for you. Um, no matter what it is, if you get enjoyment out of it, that's the most important part. Um, and so that was the, <laughs> that was the beginning of this snowballing and we're like, Oh man, uh, I guess we're a little <laughs> too, uh, <laughs> we have to phrase better with our, our junk miles after this. <laughs> yeah. Alex, um, you had some thoughts on this one too. Yeah. For me, I think, I don't know. I can approach this a few different ways. I think having the discipline to be undisciplined is important. So mm -hmm. knowing that like, I'm going to go do this 60 mile ride, but I know it's going to refuel the mental side of me, you know, so that I can hit the next four weeks of workout. So it's like in short term thinking, you know, it may not be the perfect workout. It may not be your sweet spot or your zone two or whatever, but for the next four weeks, you'll be dialed, you know, you'll be stoked. You'll be like, I got my ride in. And it's like, if you need to sprinkle those in like at the end or beginning of each training cycle, you know, wherever you deem it makes a lot of sense to have that motivation for the next four weeks, it'll overall put you in a better position. So it's like, it's kind of like striving for perfection in a way. If you try to be this perfect person and you fall short, then you just are like, nah, can't do it. But if you set it up to your personality where it's like, like for me, <laughs> you know, I would look at this and be like, okay, well I'll make it a really long zone two ride because mentally for me that checks boxes. You know, it's like, okay, I got a big endurance block in, but it was fun. I got to do a new route. Okay. Now moving on to the next thing, but that doesn't necessarily work for everybody. It's like, if you just need a day off where you don't even bring your head unit, take it off, go for that 60 mile ride, enjoy it, get that like emotional, like mental boost and bring that into your next four to six weeks of training. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just something I've been really good at in the last two years has been tailoring my training to my style. I'm very analytical. I like weighing my food. I like hitting power targets. So we train that way because it works for me. But find out what works for you to keep you consistent. You know, like I want to bring it back to our theme of consistency. If this will help consistency in the long run, it's a good thing. And I think, you know, I'm guilty of it as well. When we were talking about the junk miles, like I still hate that name. Like <laughs> just because they don't have a physical purpose or a zone or a power target doesn't make them useless. Mm. Yeah. Well said. Well said. Amber. <clears throat> 
I mean, I just, I agree with everything these guys have been saying. Um, and I'll just add to that. Never feel bad about riding your bike. It's just, it's riding your bike pedaling. I mean, every pedal stroke that you, you do when you get on your bike is constructive. It's reinforcing good patterns. It's teaching you new things. You can learn how to be a better bike rider every time you get on your bike, regardless of whether you're doing structured training or not. And of course we here are very big fans of structured training because we know it works so well, but exactly what Alex and Pete said, you know, you have to find those things that are going to stoke your fire. And if that includes unstructured training, which for me, absolutely it does. I like both. I really enjoy the structure. I think it gives me something to focus on. It gives me really great metrics and benchmarks to see and and get that progress that really helps motivate and reinforce uh, what I'm doing and build my confidence. But on the other hand, that, you know, that's great until it's not right. So balancing that with some big, fun, unstructured adventure rides with friends. Um, maybe right now it's just unstructured adventure rides, <laughs> but, but, uh, yeah, keeping your, keeping your mind on that bigger picture and what are the elements that you can include that are going to make you most consistent? Because if you're having fun with your training, you're so much more likely to come back to it day after day, week after week than if you feel like it's a punishment or you feel like it's, you know, if it's making you feel bad, like, no, no, that's not what we want. We want it to be really fun and empowering. It's not going to necessarily always be easy, but it can be fun. It can be empowering and it's totally okay to sprinkle in different elements to get there. Mm -hmm. I, I want to wrap a literal example around something that you mentioned there and Alex mentioned as well. The, the whole concept that if I do this ride, this unstructured ride, it's going to throw my training plan off and everything's going to be lost. I think that if you feel like you need that ride, think of it this way, you skipping that one workout and replacing it with this junk miles, I'm saying this in air quotes ride might enable you to have consistency for the next month. Whereas if you try to push through it and fight something that you feel like you really need, then that's going to compromise weeks of workouts thereafter. Uh, it'll be tough for you to hard. Every time you get on the bike, you're going to be fighting an emotional battle and mental battle instead of just getting on the bike. That's, that's something that's really hard. I, 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 not that it was junk miles, but I actually had to make a similar adjustment yesterday where I was so emotionally fried from the day. It was so hard that when I have my two and a half hour sweet spot workout, I simply, I, I was terrified at the thought of it and physically not sure I could do it. So I adjusted and I did a smaller workout. Yes, I didn't do what was planned. However, that 30 minutes of spinning was something. It wasn't nothing. And it made it so that my next week, I feel like I can be much more, I'll, with much greater ease, I'll be able to follow the plan. So it's, it's kind of like what Amber was talking about, thinking of the big picture. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's not the end of the world when you do that. And in fact, it's actually a good thing. One thing I did want to mention though, is sometimes I found that I get into a habit with having this release. So like, um, one thing that I've mentioned before on the podcast is that on Saturdays, I'd like to have, especially during the summer Saturdays, I leave open of my structure or I'll have a workout that I'll do in the morning and then I'll have my long ride, something like that. Cause that long ride is like emotionally fulfilling for me. I get time on the bike to just focus on riding the bike itself, building skill, riding awesome trails, seeing beautiful things. Uh, but the, that might be looked different for some of you. That may be a group ride, maybe something else that you do. But there are times where I find that that activity, that release that I have and I have planned in, it loses its effectiveness. 
And in some cases it can actually become detrimental, like a, like a, a group ride that turns into like a toxic culture, right? Uh, we all know of toxic group rides. If that it's going to that group ride every time afterward, you feel like completely smoked and just like emotionally taxed because it's such like a, a, I mean, a typical toxic group ride environment, then maybe just don't then be analytical about that. A lot of the time we hold on to a release because it's what's worked in the past and we aren't analytical about what it's actually doing for us. And we shouldn't be afraid of finding new things that are refreshing and helpful for us. If the current thing that we've selected has lost its, its value in that regard. So always be analytical about it. Um, and, and this is one of the reasons why we always talk about low volume plans being really beneficial for people. Um, Michael Brophy on the successful athletes podcast this week, he's five Watts per kilo and he does it following a low volume plan. So, and he does that because he has a low volume plan with three workouts that he nails every week. He hits those three workouts and then the rest of the time that completely allows him to be able to add on training. If he wants add on riding, take it off, do whatever else he needs. But he knows that like within his life, if he pushes his limits in terms of if he fills the available time box to hundred percent, he has zero wiggle room and it's likely going to cause him to fail. But if he fills that to 70%, 60%, that gives him the wiggle room necessary to allow life to be life and training still stays consistent. So this is a great, I'd say another great example of why a low volume plan could be really helpful for people. So, and honestly, like three just, workouts a week, you know? Yeah. And I'll just doable. add one thing. Um, Jonathan talked a little bit about finding the thing that's going to bring you balance and, 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 and lift you up and help with that consistency. You can also create that thing if you haven't found it. Right. So if, if you haven't found a group ride that has the vibe that you're looking for, make one, you can go out and create these opportunities for yourself too. Even if they don't already exist, you can create online meetups, uh, schedule group workouts. I mean, there's a whole kind, there's a whole host of things that you can do, but just remember, like it's in your power to create those opportunities too, if they don't already exist. And chances are, if it's something that's missing for you, it's probably missing for somebody else too. So by creating that opportunity, you're inviting people in who are going to really be like-minded and appreciate the same element, um, of fun. Yeah. So Pete and I have done right Pete with our 10 mile TT challenge that we did one week. We haven't done it any other week, but we will do it. So actually will, you did more than I did. Than I did I, one but more, yeah. but, uh, now it's snowing everywhere, uh, which is really dampers. Our, our, yeah. uh, anyways, it's, it's okay. No more, no more 10 mile TTs till, till the sun's out. Yeah. Which that's, that's kind of the, the fun thing though. You like, you can find something that works. And even if Pete, you know, if I didn't have Pete to do that with, it could still be something fun for me individually. So just to have like, to your point, Amber, you can create those things yourself. So set up a silly thing where it's like, you know, uh, trying to find routes that are like the absolute flattest route that you can that covers a certain distance and that'll make you go on new roads, do something different. I don't know. You can change it up <clears throat> and find something. So, uh, Steve's question says, I recently injured my hamstring while running. This happens just as I am starting a full distance triathlon training plan, which is kind of frustrating. Uh, man, Steve, I can feel the frustration. That would be tough. Um, he says, I'm not in a rush to get back to training because, or back to running because I don't want to re-injure my hamstring. I also have plenty of time until my A race in September, which is Ironman Maryland. Um, but then says in the interim, I want to fill up my training T or my running TSS with something else. So basically substituting the running for something else. Do you recommend adding bike or swim workouts in there instead? If so, should I try to mimic the intensity of the run workouts 
Or should I temporarily switch my triathlon base plan with something more cycling cycling specific as a way to fill up my TSS and then sprinkle in swims as appropriate? Any advice would be appreciated. Thanks. Uh, Steve, you are a true triathlete data-driven person. I understand this feeling of like, I have a hole and it's quantifiable. Therefore I should fill it with the same quantity. Like, <laughs> you know, like that's, that's the tendency that we all have for sure. Um, Pete, uh, do you want to kick us off on this one? Your yeah. Thoughts? Yeah. I like this one because this is such an obvious, uh, yeah, the, this is an obvious solution to a problem that a lot of people experience. Um, where if, if you can't do something, it, just like you said, there's there's a hole or a void, and I'm just going to fill the same thing, and then I will progress just like I should be in this new um, state that I'm in. Um, and I think one of the main problems with this is you, no matter how you got injured in the first place, um, there's something to think about anytime you get a setback of any way, shape, or form. That's a good opportunity to kind of reevaluate where you are, where you're trying to go, and the best way to use your time. Um, and I think this gets overlooked a lot. Um, if you have an A event and it's six or seven months away, um, for a lot of people, the best thing they they should be doing with their time and energy isn't adding more volume right this second with things you're already good at. Um, and it happens, it happens to everybody. It's happened to me um, where you have this opportunity where... <laughs> If you're not if you're not running, all of a sudden you have three more hours a week. Um, and so for me personally, if I had three more hours a week, um, I would probably be spending my time doing more strength training and more mobility and probably cooking healthier meals. And that would do Ooh. more for my trajectory as an athlete than doing more training at this point in my life. Um, and so what what everybody can do is if you have a starting point and an ending point, you have to maximize your time in between, but you really have to look at what's limiting yourself and then what you can do to push those limits up because that's where you're going to get the most return on your time. Um, and even though it's an obvious choice to do more training, for a lot of people, more training isn't going to get... Uh, this is another blanket statement. For a lot of people, there's multiple ways they could use their time. They could split it up. There might be some more training. There might be some diet. There might be some strength. There might be more recovery. But making sure you're not doing a like a one part solution for your problem is what changes you um, to get you further overall. Um, and the TSS is this is one I feel like we have to say we'll just say it every week for the for the rest of forever. Um, don't chase TSS. Chase what you're supposed to do at the right time, um, mm. and then that's going to maximize your time. So. I think it's really difficult to step back and look at yourself as an athlete and figure out what your limiters are. But like we always say, ask some of your friends, ask your coach, ask someone who's experienced in what you're trying to do and help ask them to help you figure out what could be limiting you as an athlete and then start breaking down your time to tackle those problems rather than just directly adding more training on top of something. Great points. Uh, Alex, uh, what, what thoughts do you have on this one? Yeah. Um, I actually just went through this with my hip. I woke up one morning and my hip flexor had acted up and I couldn't do my workout or my strength training. And definitely like the mental side of things is right. Like, how can I, how can I do these one legged or <laughs> 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 figure out a way, but 
My, if my I do go-to. it twice on one leg, it equals the same, right? Yeah. <laughs> Alex is like, stop it, guys. Rate. That's exactly what I thought. Yeah. <laughs> Why is this funny? <laughs> but yeah, I mean, after I get through all that mental, like back and forth, my go-to is filling the training time with recovery time. So say, for example, I had a two-hour ride on the schedule. Um, I do this for two reasons. One, it gets some dedicated time to to fix what's going on. And two, it keeps it in my schedule. So it's like I can't ride, but it keeps that like block on my schedule from getting filled with other things. It's still like athletic time, if you will. So for me with the hip flexor, it was like I knew what happened. I knew I like wasn't keeping up with the mobility, wasn't keeping up with the rolling and wasn't in this case doing the the couch stretch as often as I should be. So there are some good things to be drawn from this. Like in my particular situation, it was good that it happened in the off season. It was a reminder that like if this happened during the season and you neglected it, this could happen right before race day. So it's kind of like something to remind you like to be on top of these things. Mm-hmm. Um, in this particular case, I did know exactly what to do because it's something that I'd experienced before. And I know like true injuries are different, right? Like if you crash, but talking in like the vein of overuse injuries or like nagging injuries, it's good to have a, a set of like prehab. Like Jonathan, I think of you and your knee, like you know what you need to do to keep that in check now. So it's kind of getting to that point where you understand what you need to do to be functional at your sport. So I think it's a good time to find out what those things are, you know, try a few stretches. Um, sometimes with, with true injury, that time is for rest. So it's like, if I set that two hours aside and the best thing for my injury is to nap, then it's like, then I have that time to do that. And I let myself do that so that I can come back stronger. So it's not always, and that's where it gets difficult, right? It's not something always active. Like I'm going to go stretch it and it's going to feel better right after I'm going to go get a massage and it's going to feel better right after. Sometimes it's just time and rest Mm. and that can be the hardest but setting aside that time and allowing yourself to rest and telling yourself like this is the best thing i can be doing right now is super helpful imagine putting all the time and energy you do into training into recovery into nutrition into something like that it's going to make your training more productive and easier so like it's a great opportunity to to double down on that and actually like if you have workouts on the calendar from four to five you were going to be training don't, don't get rid of that time. Like keep that time there and let that time be sacred. Let it be set apart and something special for you to be able to still work on becoming the athlete you want to become. Um, it may not be training, but you just keep the time block the same and you can uh, throw stuff in. And Alex, what you mentioned for multi-sport athletes in particular with injury is it's so common just because of the strain of doing all the three different sports and, and the volume that a lot of them take on with doing the, you know, the longer distance stuff. That's a super good point to that. Amber, a question on the swim side, because the usual thing that I hear multi-sport athletes do is like, Oh, injury, especially if it's lower body, like legs, hips, knees, ankles, foot, get in the pool, like spend that Mm -hmm. time in the pool. That's what I hear most commonly. Uh, do you have, I, I know that you haven't been a triathlete, but being a swimmer and also a cyclist and understanding things the way you do, do you have any insight on that? Yeah. First thing I want to say is just to, uh, Jonathan mentioned something that I thought was really important and I don't want to forget it. So I'm just going to jump to that and then I'll come back to the swimming part of it, which is just imagine if this injury happened two weeks before your big event. I mean, it's actually really 
I mean, if an injury was going to happen, this is probably the best time for it to happen. So by taking the time to make sure that you heal this completely and really, really well, you ensure that you're not going to spend, you know, instead of, you know, take, I don't know, four or six, however long you need to heal this thing completely so that you don't end up spending months having it recur and having to manage it again and having it come back again. And then also you don't want, you don't want this to come back and haunt you in the weeks and months before the big event. So the sooner you, I mean, of course, the sooner you can heal the better, but more importantly, the better you can heal right now, the better, because then you're going to set yourself up for the the highest likelihood for success. So prehabbing and making sure that you're doing all of the things that you need to do to heal this thing, even if that means just resting. And even if that means tanking your TSS for a while, that's the most important thing you can do because all the training in the world right now is not going to help you if you have a nagging hamstring injury for your entire season. So that's the, the number, number one thing. In the meantime, there are other constructive things you can do. So if in addition to the appropriate amount of rest, you want to work on some other things, there are certainly some technique stuff that you can work on in the pool. Um, I'll share a story. So when I was in college, I ended up having to get shoulder surgery and I was rehabbing after that shoulder surgery. So when I got back in the pool, when I had enough range of motion, the physical therapist told me I was only allowed to do breaststroke. I couldn't do freestyle backstroke butterfly. And on my first day back, I was only allowed to do one lap. That's it. 25 yard pool, not even a 50 meter pool. <laughs> I was allowed Whoa. to do one lap a breaststroke in a 25 yard pool. One and then second, the next Amber, day, can I add some context to this? Because how yes. many years had you been swimming by this point doing <laughs> so endless laps in fifties? <laughs> like, so doing this, this probably is probably like, my 12th year of, of like full on <laughs> swim training. It was like, this is, this your is workout like the, is one lap. <laughs> it's the equivalent of like doing like, you're going to pedal for 30 seconds at zone one, right? Like it's, yes. it's gotta feel like, what am I even doing? <laughs> That's exactly how I felt. Like, what is even the point of this? And then literally on the second day, PT said, okay, you can swim two laps. And on the third day you can swim three laps. It was maddening, but I was so lucky because one of the assistant coaches at the time was this brilliant guy. Um, and he sat me down and he's like, okay, we've got one lap. How are we going to get the most out of this one lap? And I was kind of like, oh, give me a break. man! It's one lap. Like, <laughs> Get out of here with your one lap. But he said, let's, let's focus on distance per stroke. And in swimming distance per stroke is like, if it's a, it's a really key metric that you can use to identify how efficient your technique is. So I did one lap trying to take as few strokes as I possibly could. And then the second day when I had two laps, I tried to get both of those laps under the number of strokes that I'd had the day before. And I had to be so focused on my technique to do this. I ended up, so when I was a swimmer breaststroke, I was a, an individual medley swimmer, which meant that I do all four strokes and breaststroke was always my weakest leg. I took my breaststroke time down from, I think it was 110 in the hundred breaststroke down to like 102, 103 that season in one wow. season and, and in swimming to take 10 seconds off a hundred, a hundred yard time is like unheard of, That's but like that focus faster. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing how that math works out. <laughs> but, 
But that, that focus on technique and efficiency paid off big time. And it wasn't TSS. It wasn't absolute strength. It wasn't power. It was technique. And so that's something that I think, especially in triathlon, you can really make huge gains on that front. So if it's not going to set back your hamstring, if it's not going to take away from the rehab that you need to be doing with that, you can do some, you know, some drills in the pool. I would stick with the long axis stroke. So backstroke and freestyle, you can swim with a pull buoy so that you're, you're really isolating that upper body and you can do some really awesome form drills, do 10 and tens where you're doing, um, holding 10 on each side. Uh, you can do breath control. Um, you know, I wouldn't do flip turns. I would do really gentle grab turns so that you're just being super, super easy, making sure that you're not using that hamstring too much, but focus on quality over quantity for this time. You can get you can make some really, really big gains that will pay off big time, big time down the road, but it's not going to come in the form of TSS right now. And I think that's important to kind of wrap your head around. This is a, another thing I hear a lot of triathletes say is basically like if you have an, an, an injury, like a hamstring injury, you definitely don't want to run, but you can ramp up the volume on the bike. And, and I've heard that said before, like, yeah, well, I mean, I had a hamstring injury, so I spent a lot of time on the bike and in the pool and just less time on the run. Uh, but I don't know about you. I use my hamstrings quite a lot when I pedal, <laughs> like, yeah, like, it's not <laughs> like does. it's some sort of dormant muscle and, and cycling is such a repetitive action on that muscle. I know that you're not doing something where it's like, you know, uh, some sort of full on, like a hamstring curl or something. It's still very straining on the muscle. So it's, you know, you don't want to just find a different way to stress the muscle, right? <laughs> Instead, you want to give yourself the time to recover, right, Alex? Yeah. Uh, I actually wanted to just tie in two things that I heard over these last two questions that I think would be helpful. One, you said respect the time for training. And I think just overarching, this is a super important, like I've, I've, talk to people who ask about my consistency and I will preface it with the fact that I am very lucky in my situation. My fiance is a athlete as well. So she gets it. She respects that time and we don't have children at the moment. So like, there's nothing like fighting for my time besides work and responsibilities that I have. But I think the first step is really owning that time. I think a lot of people feel guilty because their, their goals aren't big enough in their mind, right? Like I just want to win cat two. And it's like, really own those really like I want to win cat too. Like, and I need this time to do that. I think you got to be the first one to respect that time for other people too. So I think kind of just setting that aside and being like, this is my time to train and it's important to me. And, and owning that is a big piece to consistency. And then Amber mentioned this in both, I think, or at least it was in the notes for the first one, but there's so much more you can do besides TSS. You can focus on cornering you can focus on you know mentally preparing yourself you could meditate with that time like there's so many other things that you can do to improve performance that aren't physically measured that mm. you can do with this time whether when you're injured or like when we were talking about those soul rides right there's other things you can do that will benefit your training rather than just pumping out watts and yes, that that's coming from me. There's, there's other yeah. things you can do besides blocks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, this is, and it's really tough when you have racing that you're missing too. Like as a result of this, I've been in this position before where I had to basically take like a whole season off uh, to really do what everyone said here, which was just respect the injury, give it the give it its own due respect, and as a result, that meant that I needed to 
put a halt to everything else so that I could actually give it the, the time, space and attention that it needed to be able to resolve it. And that meant missing a ton of races. And that's hard. Like, especially for a person like Pete, like Pete thrives on races. Um, if there was a race in Reno every day, it would be super bad for Pete because Pete just would yeah. not be able to not chase those balls. Like golden retriever yeah. after ball, he would have to race. <laughs> yeah. Like I would explode. It just have to happen. I, yeah. I would explode, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, but you, you have to get to a point where you, your priorities are, are set toward a, a specific goal rather than getting too distracted with making sure that you're checking off the boxes. Like we talk about being process oriented and it's very important, but those process goals can never lose a true North, North star. Right. And that North star should be performance health. Like th these, these things that are more centered around something that is an achievement of balance and also, you know, rising tides, so to speak. But if you get so focused on the process that you lose sight of the end goal, then it can get really, truly bad. Um, so it's always tough, but you got to balance it. So, um, okay. Let's get into this one. This one's from Jillian. She says recently Pete was on the podcast and you guys mentioned that Pete was good at making races fit. It's uh, fit his strengths. Uh, can we elaborate more on that? What about the team strategy around a leader who doesn't perfectly fit the course? I would love to hear Amber talk about this and she is X world tour. So we had a lot of fun with this one and uh, like a lot of fun with this one in the planning meeting. And we probably could have dedicated hours to just talking about this. So, uh, yeah. buckle up. This, it's going to be this long. This is the beginning of the next three hours of the podcast. Just sort of knows. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is when we actually change the podcast is five hours from now on. We'll just talk about this one every week. So, um, uh, so yeah, so analyzing the race and what Pete, what you do to make a race fit your strengths. Cause you are very skilled at that. And then we'll also focus in where she says, what about team strategy around a leader who doesn't perfectly fit the course? And that's kind of, um, we'll talk about it from more of an individual perspective with Pete and then Amber, I'm sure, you know, you'll have some to add to that, but we all have lots of stuff to, to add to this. Uh, Pete, uh, where do you want to start with this one? Yeah, I first of all, if anybody ever wants to geek out about this, please set, shoot me a message. I get some messages on Instagram about um, race tactics, whether it's pro racing or anything. Please always, I love, I I could geek out about this stuff forever. So, uh, you guys should also interrupt me when I just am still going. Uh, but <laughs> um, I think I think for me and for for almost every racer, you kind of decide. Uh, there's a fork in the road right at the beginning when you're thinking about your race and it's whether the kind of the race or the course is suited to, to you or the race or the course is not suited to you because all of a sudden when you, when you take an honest look at who you are as a racer and the course or the race, um, you should be able to tell, uh, whether it's something that is going to be in your wheelhouse or it's something you're going to have to change who you are and how you race to kind of adapt yourself to the course. And so, um, for me personally, that means, uh, it's pretty basic either. I'm going to get dropped, but if I'm in, I have a great chance of winning, um, which is a lot of courses for me. If, if I can hang on for dear life or keep, keep catching back on over and over and over. And if I'm there at the end, I probably have a pretty good chance of, of success or there's a race that's really well suited to me. And then it's up to me to utilize kind of my best race winning effort to maximize my skill and uh, power profile and everything on the course to kind of crack the whip and use use one bullet to win. 
Um, and that's as condensed as we can make it really quick, but I think we can break it down um, a lot more. So yeah. we'll, <laughs> the, the one that I get asked more often is um, races that aren't, you're not suited to, to you. How do you kind of tackle that? Um, and how do you, how do you examine a race and know what you're gonna, going to be capable of doing? Um, and, and I think that's kind of uh, a 1D look at a race. What you want to do is you want to plan your strategy of you as a, you as a cyclist or to what the race is actually going to unfold. And then you're going to stack um, kind of luck and the odds in your favor. You can't ever say, I'm going to pedal this hard for five minutes over and over and over. You, Alex might be able to. Um, but <laughs> I, I beg to differ. <laughs> uh, it, it depends on most people are not capable of doing that. But what you can do is you can make the stars align so that you're in a better position at critical points on the race. You're less tired or more. Uh, other people are more fatigued at critical points on the race. Um, and it's all about kind of, you're not, you're, you're not turning the race on its head. You're like twisting a little dial so that your chances of getting dropped are 40% instead of 60% or something like that. And I think that's what, um, when we, when we preach about efficiency, we're not talking about monumental changes. We're talking about the most minuscule things you can be doing to change the race for you. Because if you're going to do 15 or 20 of these really small changes, that's what changes the outcome of the race. Um, mm -hmm. And so for a lot of people, um, it's mainly positioning um, and knowing what you're good at doing um, and what you're bad at doing uh, really changes how you should approach a race and where you should, should be positioned. If you have the ability to get through a pack really well, save your... Uh, position advanced positioning for when the race is difficult and other people are struggling. Um, and if you're not good at positioning, make sure you're in the position you need to be before you get to that point. Um, and this could be a downhill, this could be an uphill, this could be really technical turns. Um, but you have to look at what you're capable of doing. And then uh, you're going to capitalize on that over and over and over in a race. And all this is doing is stacking the odds in your favor. So when people when people are thinking about, I'm going to do these things and it's going to be a completely different race experience. Unfortunately, that's not the case. It just sucks <laughs> a little bit less and you might not get dropped quite so early. And so when I was figuring this out, I've done really <clears throat> hilly races, which don't suit me, but I've been able to be dropped 15 times in a race, probably, or 20 times in a race. And come back and still been able to finish because I didn't give up. I'm, I'm better at longer power. And I just knew that probably the course of the race is I'm going to get dropped 15 times. But if I'm there in the last 1K, like I can probably get a top five. So you're really you're really racing for a specific point in time and getting your there, getting yourself there in the best possible chance. And so mm. for me, even hilly crits, um, I'm probably going to get dropped. But you still fight all the way, all the way, all the way with making slightly better decisions. Um, and that's what changes how you feel at the end of the race and how everybody else feels and kind of your chances of success. Um, mm -hmm. So that's still, uh, we could go deeper still, but uh, yeah. I was going to see. Can I, 
Can John. I offer some concrete examples really quick of this? Yes. <clears throat> so things that I see Pete do really well. The point that he made of on a lap course of positioning yourself over and over again in the right spot. So um, it's a hilly course. Uh, actually, I'm going to use specific examples. Then you'll be able to go to our YouTube channel. You'll be able to look at the look up these races and you'll be able to see what we're talking about because we have them in, for, for the race analysis series. So there's one called the UNR criterium and it's the local campus criterium that we have that usually happens. They have a collegiate race, but then they also open it up to other athletes to be able to race. Um, this course is hilly and uh, punchy, nothing too long, but it's, it's in terms of like long, steady drags, but the climbs are punchy and the course is technical. It strangely actually fits Pete, but the, the punchy parts, you still get hurt by really light riders that are able to punch up those things pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. But one thing that Pete, your, your point that you knew that you couldn't slip on and you had to execute in terms of positioning every time in the right spot before the descent, you made sure that you were close to the front of the pack. And you did that because you knew that that descent, if you had a clear track in front of you, you'd be able to carry more speed because you're, you're a bigger rider and you're more arrow and you're not scared of turns. So you don't hit the brakes. Um, so at the bottom of that big turn, you could carry all that momentum. So you kept it, you let yourself move through the pack elsewhere on the course. You didn't freak out about not being perfectly fast and perfectly positioned in other spots, but in that one spot, you knew you had to be perfectly positioned. So you did that lap after lap after lap. And that's what helped you in that race. Um, and you mentioned layering and that's a really important thing. There's the course and how the course is likely or how the course combines with your strengths. That's one thing, but depending on the field and the conditions, it may get raced very differently. A pan flat criterium, Pete and I have mentioned this before we have air center and go look at that. Um, it's nothing exciting. Sorry. It's a flat business park criterium and as flat as it gets. Um, (laughs) but the racing is actually super dynamic on that course because it's pan flat. So that means that when there's a hill, that's like a, a, a central focal point for everybody in that race. They know something's going to happen around that hill. Alex and I see it all the time in mountain biking in the sense that there's usually with XEO, there's one or two significant climbs and a technical section. So then as a result, that's where everybody's focus goes. But the interesting part about a flat course is that it opens it up so that anything can happen at any point. And then it also really leaves it up to conditions in the pack rather than the course. However, if any race course, look at it first and think, okay, how would I ideally race this in a vacuum? If it's just me understand how you would perform there, then add on additional layers. What's the weather going to be like? Am I going to have a headwind the whole day when I'm going through the section? That's going to change your approach. That means that you don't want to be the first rider and the one that's really using your strength as you're going through those rollers, whatever it may be. Then think about the field. How's the field going to race? This is a big team going to show up. If so, they're probably going to want to control the race so I can sit back and let them do it. Or is this a part of a series? If so, that means there are going to be GC riders that are really going to be pushing for something and they'll have motives outside of just winning the race, but getting points or minimizing losses. And then think of it, is it just a free for all? And you have no clue who the racers are in that case, instead of going out and showing your cards and thinking, I just need to race this, how it fits my strengths. It's really about, okay, I need to make sure that I put myself in a position where I'm never vulnerable. That way I can always be ready to respond when needed because I just don't know when those things are going to happen. 
Um, Pete's a master at doing this sort of thing. And also one thing that Pete does when he races, you can check out the, um, Folsom Criterium from last year. I think we have a video of this one. It may be just so. a full race, but it was a P12 field. Uh, Mike's bikes was in the field. They're very strong. You can also watch the one from Land Park Criterium that we did. Pete is good at a race if it's hard. And when I say hard, I mean over and over like a high speed race, something where people are having to attack over and over and over again, different people, or just the, there's a long drag and the pace is high. Pete's very good at that sort of a thing. If it's a huge kilojoule demand, by the time you get into the final kilometer, Pete's happy. So in that case, Pete knows that that's how he wants the race to unfold. So if he has analyzed everything and he has thought about what I just said and to every degree, but then the race just is not unfolding how he wants it to unfold. Pete then has the choice. Do I want to make this the race that I want it to be? Or do I revert to a plan B or a plan C, whatever that might be. So you, you think through all these things, and then you also have that plan A, that plan B and that plan C at the ready. The cool part about Pete's strength of making a race hard is the fact that it's really hard for a lot of people if done right. So it's a really good way to improve his odds. Whereas if somebody that's a really good climber and they just need climbs to happen in a race and they're in a flat criterium, their ace in the hand is actually something that's totally, it's going up against a Royal flush. They just don't have much value there. Whereas Pete's tactic is actually very valuable across a lot of races because it's pretty effective. So, um, so yeah, it's super cool. And, and if you can watch all those races and race analysis, watch Pete's full races and really pay attention to it when you're training, because Pete is a master at being able to break that stuff down. Sorry for making you blush, Pete, but um, a master <laughs> at being able to break that stuff down. I, so I I, uh, I appreciate the kind words, and and it, it took me a long time. I want everybody to know it took me years. I was so bad. I used to get made fun of on my team for having too high <laughs> of a power value for most races. Um, so Wait, don't worry. I I point of racing. <laughs> says the mountain biker <laughs> uh, so but one one thing i think there's two really important things um that if, if you want a couple black and white rules to live by uh with at least making the race at least maximizing your time that you're racing if it's hard for you um it better be hard for everybody else and preferably mm. harder uh it's you're <laughs> if, if you're one person and there's 50 people in the field. If you're just on the front stringing it out, um, I nobody can handle that uh, unless your unless your fitness level is so much higher than everybody you're riding with. That's an impossible way to race a race. But if you can think about every time you're about to put power down in in some sort of attack or positioning or whatever, it better be hard for everybody else um, or harder. So. The best part is if you're coasting, guess what? Everybody else is working harder than you. Um, so the more you're coasting, the better you're going to do. Uh, when you're off the front, if everybody is, uh, you know, six feet behind you, you're not you're not doing it right. But if you've coasted your way off the front and then you start putting power down and you caught everybody by surprise, that's a way better way to put your power out in just a really finite view of of pedaling and making sure everybody else is pedaling, make sure everyone else is pedaling harder. Um, so that can be just corners. You can, you can coast into a corner, pedal hard out of a corner. Um, if it's a climb, you want to make sure that, you know, you can pedal harder on the climb, but you're saving energy so that everybody else is digging really deep and there's a slingshot effect, things like that. Um, make sure that you are pedaling 
easier than everybody else for most of the race, except for when it really, really matters. Um, and that's kind of the last thing we'll talk or when we, we spin this on its head and, and we'll talk about how to win a race. Um, but for everybody, there's an optimal way to win a race. But just like Jonathan said, there's a, you should have an A, B, C, D, probably hundreds of ways, thousands of ways that you could win. And you're going to go through the priority of your most likely way to win. And if that gets thrown out the window, you have your next most likely way to win. And every time you're in a new position, there's a new way you're going to win. Um, and so like John was saying, the harder the race for me, the better. And that's more or less just because my, I'm pretty resilient as a rider, as far as like repeated efforts and I have a high power threshold. Mm -hmm. So between those two things, I have a pretty surefire way of if I, even if I'm making the race hard, I'm probably doing at least as long as I'm doing it correctly, I'm at least doing the same amount of damage to most people. And so to me, um, the, the way I'm going to win is probably either a five or a 10 minute effort by myself out of most likely the group, probably not the field. The field is too good at chasing me down. Um, but if it's only five or 10 people, that's much higher chance of success. Um, and then I can sprint not very well in the field, but again, from a small group. So I need to kind of lean into the race, making it hard enough that only five or 10 people can, or two people can stick with me. And then it's up to me to ride the race hard. And again, that falls into my wheelhouse where I can go really hard and then ride the race hard and then go hard at the end. Um, mm -hmm. And that's what makes me a better kind of, that's my ideal scenario is, is really mm -hmm. if I can make the race really hard for the first 10 minutes, drag five people off and then either attack them with five laps to go or sprint them at the end. That's how I would choose for every race to go. And so I go in with that mentality and then you start like John said, layering that way you want the race to unfold with your tactics and your positioning and the efficiencies that I talked about earlier. If you're doing all the right things over and over, my power is I can definitely save 10 or 20% on most races if I'm doing everything right. And when you think about the, the breadth of the field, if you're being 20% more efficient with your power, you are obvious. All of a sudden, you're in the high end of people in the field. And so that allows you to make the, the moves and the power necessary to win. So, mm -hmm. um, I think the last thing we talked about was the more, the more fitness you have in your race, the more mistakes you can make. So even if you mm -hmm. don't have a bunch of fitness, you just get to make less mistakes and you can still win. And I think that's one of the most important things to think about is you just get less chances to roll the dice. But if you have an A plan and you do everything right, and you execute on your plan, that's going to be your best chance. So lean, leading up to that, just make the correct choice over and over and then execute. And that might only be eighth on the day or 15th or 25th, but that's okay. You did everything right and you did the best you possibly could. And that's what landed you your good result. So mm -hmm. I think it's... Uh, process goals. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So um, it's practice and... Uh, it's it's really really fun but it's something you kind of have to take an honest look at yourself i feel like we've been saying that a lot today uh, <laughs> take an honest look at yourself and and examine who you are and then examine what you're trying to do and then putting those two together is uh is that's the that's the whole point that's, that's the tough the part point. that's why we do this Amber, right 
Yeah. Amber, <laughs> I'm sure that, so I, I know that you have some stuff to add on the team side of things, but also I'm sure you have individual, um, circumstances just for you that, that it may be some experiences you could share on this too, in terms of reading the race and turning it in your favor. Yeah. So the way I like to think about a race is every race is going to come down to a series of selections and your goal, if you want to try to win the race is to make every selection, including the final one across the finish line. <laughs> um, and what you can do with any race is even if you've, if you've, if you've already raced the race and you know, the course, and you have a really good idea of what parts of that course are likely to be selective either because of terrain or because of features that make it really technical or because tactically there's something about that part of the course that lends itself to a breakaway, an attack or a surge, right? So, um, and if you don't, if you don't know the course and you've never raced it before, you can always get on Google maps and Google earth, take a look at it and you can identify, Oh, there's a roundabout here. That's going to be a technical feature that might be a little bit selective. And once you have kind of a list, a bullet point list of highly, you know, potential selection points in the race, then you can look at each of those and start to evaluate them in terms of your personal skill set. Like, are you a really good technical rider? If not, then it's going to be really, really important for you to be at the front of the group as you're coming into a technical part of the course. And you can start to memorize points on the course where you're going to need to get yourself in good position, or you're going to need to ready yourself for a potential surge up a climb. Um, and then once you kind of evaluate each of those selections in terms of your strengths and weaknesses, then you can have a strategy for each of them in terms of setting yourself up to be best positioned to either A, make the selection that might be being forced by someone else or B being that person who is going to force the selection in that spot. So if there's a selective point that really favors you, then you might choose that to be, okay, this is going to be a point where I want to try to force a selection. And that might be attacking to create a breakaway. It might be surging up a climb to split the field, whatever it might, whatever happens to be the way that it aligns with your personal strength. So that's kind of the, one of the ways that I, I like to look at, at a race and it's kind of a good exercise to do before a race. Cause it kind of gets your mind in the modes and the mindset for it. And, um, athletes that I've worked with in the past, I'll have them do a pre-race evaluation of the course and they'll send me, you know, where they think the selection points are and what their strategy is for each of those selection points. And then after the race, we'll talk about, okay, what actually played out at each of those points? How well were you positioned? Is there something, you know, what can we learn from that and take into the future? So that's kind of the, and I, and I think it's a different way of saying what Pete was saying. So like nothing I'm saying here is, uh, is at odds at all. It's, I think every, you know, saying things in different ways can really help too. Cause everybody has different learning styles, but, um, I'm taking notes over so, here. I'm getting <laughs> Alex is taking notes. Yeah. <laughs> Get to single track first. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to talk right, so about that after, after Amber's experiences, we're going to get into mountain biking stuff, Alex. It's going to be good. So, um, yeah, I think that it, it's, it's, uh, it's about creating the race because there is a course and there's a field. And of course you're going to have to respond to how the field is racing on that course, but it doesn't mean that you're powerless. You have influence over how the race is going to unfold. And based on the actions you take, how you respond to other people, you are contributing to how that race is created. So remember it's within your power to create the race. And this is even more powerful when you have a team that you're working with, but you can even do this as an individual. So a couple examples of this, the first example I'll give is, um, it's a stage from the cascade cycling classic. It's the Aubrey Butte stage. And there's three very significant climbs. <laughs> I'll say that like not being one of the top climbers, uh, but I'm a strong climber. So, you know, 
to Pete's point, like I've managed to win races in bunch sprints. I've raced, I've won mountaintop finishes. I've won general classifications. I've won criteriums. I've won time trials. So I've learned how to win in a lot of different ways, not being a pure climber, a pure sprinter, a pure time trialist or a pure GC rider. So this is the beauty of cycling is there's always an opportunity. <laughs> you can mm-hmm. always find a way to create the race in your favor. So on this Aubrey Butte stage at the Cascade Classic, very hilly course, it was the final stage of the stage race. So this was an example where I was using tactics to my advantage, not necessarily the terrain or my particular strengths, just looking at the way the the tactics aligned with my interests. So in this case, going into the last stage, Chris Armstrong was leading the general classification by a large margin. So that meant that most of the other GC riders were kind of jockeying for position in terms of the podium because it was going to be pretty tough to overcome that gap on with one stage to go. Uh, she was also leading the queen of the mountain competition by a significant margin. So as we came into the first climb, she launched a massive attack going for the first queen of the mountain sprint. And as she launched, I noticed no one was going with her. Now, my situation was very different. I was nowhere on that QM classification, (laughs) and I was pretty far down on the general classification as well. But what I realized was that gave me this unique advantage because I was not a GC threat to anybody that gave me a long leash. And what that means is those other GC leaders and their teams would be content with me going up the road in a breakaway because I wouldn't threaten their GC position. Which meant that since no one was going with Kristen Armstrong on this steep attack on this hill... I could go with Kristen Armstrong on this steep attack on this hill. Why would she work with me? Because if she's off the front in a breakaway, she's not going to be being attacked by all of these other teams trying to get their GC leaders bumped up the leaderboard. She wouldn't have to worry about positioning in the field. All she has to worry about is me. We can work together. It's a bringing that cognitive load way down. And now, you know, we're off the front. There's so much less that we have to worry about. So it was interesting for very different reasons, our interests align. So when nobody else followed her, I gunned it and I bridged across to her and again, not a climber, but I'm burning those matches to get up that climb as fast as I can. When we crested the top, we were together and we had a big gap and we just went and she immediately saw the, you know, she immediately saw how this was going to benefit her too. So she immediately started working with me and we organized and boom, we were off the front and that was that. And at the end of the stage, I mean, All she was really worried about was winning the overall general classification in the QOM, which she did. And I took the stage. So it was a really, it was a really cool way that those tactics aligned. So that wasn't terrain and it was, you know, going, (laughs) bridging a big gap on a QOM sprint is not what I would call like my typical strength, but tactically it was very much to my advantage. Mm. Um, another example was, uh, there's a hilly road race out here in new England. It's our district championships. It's a very hilly race. Um, and the finish is at the top of a very long drag of a climb. And I knew that the people in, I knew who was going to be in the race. And there was one gal in particular, who's a really, really strong climber. And I knew that if it came down to a selection on that final climb, it was going to be really, really hard for me to beat her up that climb. Like that was going to be not necessarily impossible, but it would be a very tall ask. And I really didn't want it to come down to that if I could avoid it. But I wasn't actually sure how I was going to work this out. I knew that eventually we would we would force a selection on one of the earlier climbs. 
And so I wanted to make sure that I made those selections. And then I was going to have to figure out how I was going to get away from her (laughs) before that climb. And this is one of those things where if you're not, if you're not a strong climber or you're going up against people who are stronger climbers than you, you don't have to outclimb them. You just have to get to the climb first. Mm-hmm. Pro tip. So Pete does this all this, the time. <laughs> it's true. It's, he it's, gets it's, <laughs> Sorry, Pete. Yeah, yeah, I shouldn't have said. Yeah, yeah. It works. It works really well. So on this course, uh, there was a big downhill before that final climb, and we were doing three laps. So on the first lap, I actually attacked the downhill as an experiment to see what would happen. And I actually dropped her. I got a really big gap on her, but it was too early to go alone. It was just the two of us in the, in the, in the break. So, um, I dropped back and we worked together the second lap as we came around the second lap. I thought I could try to go again here, but I don't want to give away my plan. Cause now I knew that I could actually get away from her on the downhill. And that was going to be my, my way of getting ahead to get a head start on that final drag of a climb. And I didn't want to do it again on the second lap and give it away because I still needed her help. You know, I I didn't want to be by myself in the wind for a whole lap before that finishing lap. So I waited until the very last lap. And then I put everything I had, I burned a lot of matches. And normally I wouldn't suggest attacking on a downhill because it's a really hard place to to open up a separation, but I had managed to do it on the first one. And it was kind of, this was it. This was my shot because I had to get ahead of her before that final climb. And I managed to open up a gap And I hit that final climb alone and I managed to win the race. And I honestly think that (laughs) I think that I was able to get out of sight the way that the course was. And that mentally was really discouraging for her. So the other thing to remember is, you know, and it's not like I'm not trying to be mean, but by getting out of sight, she didn't have that visual of seeing how she might be able to shut down the gap to me. And I honestly think she was perfectly strong enough to reel me back in on that last climb, but I managed to get the physical distancing and that slight mental edge of having that head start on the climb. And so keep in mind that, you know, you can use the tactics and the terrain to your advantage. And even if you're not physically stronger than your competitors, there are ways that you can kind of mentally stack the odds in your favor too. So that was one of one example there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess I want to get into a little bit of the team stuff before this goes too long. So on a team, it's, you have a lot of, a lot of racers to choose from in, in order to, um, in terms of who you want to set up for that win. So you're naturally going to choose the person on the team who is best suited to that particular race. So it's not very often that you're really going to be working it together as a team for somebody who is not suited to that race. Um, it doesn't really happen that often. The challenge is more about how are you going to employ tactics that suit the strengths of the team? So we might want to set up our climber for a win on this big climby stage, but how are we going to use our sprinters? What tactics can we use where we can get the most out of the sprinters on the team, make them most useful and use them in a way that's going to, you know, tire out the other teams and the other climbers. So that's where the real challenge gets, I think, um, comes into play when you're talking about team tactics in terms, in terms of aligning strengths with the tactics. And a a good example of this was one of my first years of racing. I was racing for web core builders and we went to national championships in seven Springs, Pennsylvania. And Kristen Armstrong had been the reigning champion and she was, you know, obviously a phenomenal athlete and crazy good climber and seven springs is really, really hilly, but we had some really strong climbers on our team. We had Christine Thorburn, Mara Abbott, Catherine Curie. I mean, we had, we were stacked. So 
I was no Mara Abbott, no Christine Thorburn, no Catherine Carey, but I really wanted to help. So guess what I did? I got to the climb before everybody else. I went in the early break and I ended up on this massive climb in the early break. And all those strong climbers from the Peloton made a selection on that climb and they came up to us, which meant that I was now in the selection with all of the really big climbers of the whole Peloton, including the climbers on my team. So suddenly I was in a position, even being one of the weaker climbers on the team to be really, really helpful after one of the most selective climbs on the course. And this is a tactic that you'll see a lot of pro teams use where they'll send a rider up in a break with the express purpose of being there for when their climbers climb up to them. And now their climbers have a teammate, extra matches, extra help when they are going in for the the second half of the course. And somebody mentioned in the comments about how in the pro ranks, you're just doing what your director says. But I just I want to dispel that because as much as directors would love that, (laughs) (laughs) even if you have radios, the directors are back in the caravan. And I mean, maybe with the Tour de France is a little bit different because they have live video coverage of what's going on. But the truth of the matter is the decisions that you have to make on the road in a race that to be tactically effective have to be decided and acted upon often in a split second. And there's just not enough time for the director to read the race and tell you what to do in that time that where that decision has to be made. So the best directors are not the ones who tell their writers what to do. The best directors are the ones that build a chemistry and a culture within the team where the team is committed a hundred percent to one another. And so when that split second happens, there's no question of like, eh, I don't really like this person. Do I really want to cover this attack for him? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. That doesn't happen. The best directors create a culture where every single person is all in. It doesn't matter what it is, when it is, what's happening. They're just going to jump on it and make that make that decision, act on it, execute in a way that's going to be to the benefit of the team. And that's where, that's where a director's real role comes in. If there's a question and you need to go back to the director's car and, and chat about, well, Hey, you know, there's these options and there's time for that. Sure. That can help. But really when it, what it comes down to is the riders on the team being smart, making decisions and executing in the moment. And that's, that's by far the teams that are the best teams and work the best together are the ones who do that. It's not really as much about having a director on the radio in your ear. Um, Mm -hmm. the radio in your ear is more just for superfluous informational purposes. Most of the time, like (laughs) when coming up from the right, as you make this left curve up here. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) For the radio. Oh, go go ahead, ahead, John. Uh, I was going to say radios only confirm what you think you already knew. Right. Yes. And then and and exactly. half the time they're wrong. So you're <laughs> yes. both wrong. Uh, the, anyways, uh, radios are, are a double edged sword, let's just say. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I liked them because they were really great for safety's sake, you know, letting you know that there's uh hey, there's a car on the course coming up, you know, like weird things like that would happen. And that was really helpful. But I mean, if you're on a team and the team is relying a hundred percent on the director to tell you what to do from the car, you are, mm. you're in a bad spot. <laughs> you're yeah. in a really bad spot. Uh, you covered the attack. You didn't tell me to. Who's covering this yeah. one? Who's covering this one? Not it. Yeah. For, for all of, for all of us amateurs listening to this too, if you have a situation where your team, you have a team leader, but you show up to a race and they aren't a good fit for it, pull an audible like that, that uh, hopefully you have a team where you can say, Hey, at this race, 
I know you're the leader usually, or in this circumstance, but right now you're not the best bet. Instead, it's this person's best bet. And if we race for this person, we could have success. So you have to be willing to do that. You know, it's, it's tough. Um, it's just a tough, it, it, that's kind of the cool part about teams though, is the fact that you can be multifaceted. Um, mm-hmm. Alex, for you and I, not on the team side, mountain biking, <laughs> a lot of this stuff still applies of the course, your skills, the conditions and the people you race with, but how let's talk about influencing a mountain bike race. Cause so much of it is a time trial. And then the other side of it too, because you're just, uh, the reason that it comes down to a time trial is because the course is usually hard enough that it very much governs you from just going all out. Like, like if you go all out, you're going to get to the point where you blow up. And then as a result, those climbs are really going to slow you down. And you're going to bleed a lot of time. Um, if you're fortunate enough to be super fit and the fittest one in the race, then you kind of get to race the race, how you want to race. And you can really do that. The majority of us listening to this don't because only one person wins every race. And there are a lot more people than just one listening right now. So with that said, Alex, how do you influence a race when you are in it? And of course the course could bring you to your knees. Um, maybe the competition could bring you to your own pacing could bring you, bring you to your knees, plenty of things. So how do you race in such a way as to put the race in your favor? Yeah. Um, with mountain biking, I guess the course changes quite a bit and we all start like mass start style. And so the first step I think for me is kind of checking out that start. Like if you have like normally in XCO racing, we have what's called a start loop. It's normally like five or six minutes. And the idea is to like be able to shuffle positions and, and make it a level playing field. Sometimes that start loop has single track and whoever designed it doesn't understand what a start loop is supposed to do. But, <laughs> so it's like you have to take those things into consideration, right? Like if 45 seconds after the start, you're going to hop into single track, then it's, it's just gunning it to that single track and trying to like, you know, okay, there's a right sweeper, you know, before I had a UCI ranking, there was actually a strategy to it. Like, oh, okay, it's a right turn. Far right is the shortest way through the corner but it's also where everybody's going to bottleneck. So I would start on the far left of the course for that right hand, knowing that the flow around the far left would actually be faster because there's more likely to be a pileup and a slowdown in the apex of the corner. Mm-hmm. So kind of just reading the start and like, where do I need to be? Where do I want to be left to right on the start line? Do I have enough time to move up? Like for example, winter park nationals was just pretty much a fire road drag to the single track. It was two or three minutes and it was just pretty much you put out the most power you're there. But there's there's a fine line, right? Because it's like I knew if I was in the top 10 wheels that I had made, I like Amber's uh, analogy, that first selection, like that was the first check mark, right? Like I just need to be in the first 10 wheels. And to be honest, I went over my power target to do that because I was like, if I don't do this, then my my race is over because I'm going to get caught in that single track so far back that it doesn't it doesn't matter what power I put out for the rest of the race. So it's kind of like reading those situations and kind of, okay, this is the first one. Okay. Now I'm in the top 10 wheels. Okay. I went over my power target time to just sit in the wheels and recover a little bit. The descent's coming up, but you can also after that start to make the race your own by say the climb starts with fire road and then goes to single track. If you get into that single track first, you control the pace for the second half of the climb. So in your mind, you can be like, okay, I'll go a little harder for the first half, get into that single track first, and then set it to the pace that I want. And you can influence that same with descents. If you go into the descent first, you decide the pace on the descent, you decide the lines, you have a clear track. So you can use those things to your advantage 
but also to Amber's point of when she raced the race with three laps and she attacked on the descent, you don't want to show that too soon, right? Like if you know you're going to hop into the descent first because you want to be in that position or you want to control the race or you want to come out of that single track first for the sprint because it's a short sprint, then do that on the last lap, you know? Follow the other people on the descents, be like, okay, I know their lines. And then on the last lap, make that move to be in front into that descent. And yeah, there's then, a lot of poker analogies here, right? Like you don't want to show your hand too soon. Exactly. Yeah, and yeah. you're playing the people, not the game. <laughs> yep. Yes. Oh, absolutely. And like and for me, I have the advantage that at the pro level, we race the same guys like every weekend. So I know people's strengths and like you can use that to your advantage. So if I go to a climb, I can put it a little bit above what's comfortable for someone who maybe um, benefits on like a short power kind of climb. And then they're like, oh, I, just, I, I can't hold this for eight minutes. Like they know how long the climb is kind of thing. So you play that mental game of like, is he going to hold this the whole time? Is he going too hard too soon kind of thing? So it's try to get in their head a little bit. Um, and then as you come to like the end of the race, right into a sprint, it's, it's deciding if, if you feel like you back yourself in that sprint in a perfect scenario. So if you don't, then try to make that separation on that key climb, you know, put your move in before the descent and try to come to the finish line alone. But one thing that I think is important in all racing is always back yourself. If you end up coming to that sprint with someone you can't beat in a sprint, quote unquote, can't beat in the sprint, send it, give your best sprint. Yeah. I, like just because in your head, you can't beat them doesn't mean you can't. So it's like, just because someone's a better climber than you, again, air quotes, always back yourself, always be like, nope, today I'm going to beat them in a sprint. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, those are great. Actually, super good points. Short story. Several years back, I actually had a broken rib and I was racing toward the Gila and I ended up in a break with two other very, very good sprinters. Totally unexpectedly. I got dropped on the first climb, was chasing back, just had just tacked onto the back of the field when somebody attacked. And I was like, oh, sweet. This will be like the one attack I can cover today and be useful. Ended up in a break that got three minutes on the field. Whoopsie. So we're coming into the finish. And I was thinking, these are two really talented sprinters who don't have broken ribs. Um, but I did just what you said, Alex. I, I backed myself and was like, all right, this has been a long and grueling day and they're really tired. And if I can, you know, so I was at the very back of the group watching them. And I figured if I can get the jump by the time they see me in their peripheral vision, I'll already have created a huge speed differential. And because it was a long and grueling day, and this is often the case in a breakaway there's a lot of mental fatigue. So there's going to be a long, it's, there's going to be a lag in that reaction time because part of it is just because you're tired and your reaction time is going to get longer. But also there's going to be this part of everybody around you that's just like, ugh, I'm tired. Like, I don't want to go now. But if yeah. you can be the person that's just like, send it. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I did. And that's exactly, I mean, it, it was very tight. It was very tight. Like they were closing the gap to me as we got to the finish line but I managed to get it. And I was definitely not the favorite that day, but I backed mm -hmm. myself in that finishing shoot with, you know, 300 meters to go. Absolutely. And I think there's, there's definitely a layer of vulnerability to it, right? Like there's something scary about putting it all out there and losing. Yeah. And I think that sometimes it's easier just to be like, it's a better sprinter than me. So I'm not even going to try instead of mm -hmm. just giving it your all and getting beat. And I'm not going to say every time you back yourself, you're going to win. It's unrealistic, but you don't know unless you try. It's it's like the famous, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take, right? Like you can't win mm -hmm. if you don't sprint. And yeah. the best way to get over that is to lose a lot. 
Like, and I know that that sounds, but that's something that like Pete, you and I have talked about this plenty of times in crits where it's like, it's always, we never think of not going for something and, and yeah, it might blow up and it is likely to blow up in our face and that's okay. Like you try it. And that's why racing a lot is really beneficial for this sort of a thing. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's interesting. It's all really you important. Say a lot of the mountain bike races come to down to TTs and it has me thinking of, a. There was a pro XCT back in 2019 in Utah and started off the gun and I got tangled with another rider and went down and I was dead last. And like the first instinct is just be like, well, there goes my race. (laughs) I got back on and just TT style, right? Like I didn't think about anybody else in the race. Just how fast can I get from point A to point B on this course? And I actually ended up sprinting in the second main group for third place. So yeah, it's, it's easy to give up, but I think those moments, once it happens, right? Like Amber, you probably look back on that sprint moment. Anytime you doubt your ability and like, well, it's happened before, you know? So it's, it's easy to believe once you've done it. So it's, I think the first time's the hardest, even if it doesn't pan out, it's like, well, I crossed that line with so much more satisfaction because I gave my full effort. Like I'm happy to lose. If I gave everything I had, I hate losing. If I'm like, well, could have gone harder. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. And absolutely. I think, that's what, I mean, this whole conversation is kind of comes down to is it's about putting your, you're putting yourself in a position to win. It's, you know, there's never a guarantee. Like it's just, there's so much in a race that's beyond your control, but focusing on those process goals and putting yourself in a better and better position each time. And then when you find yourself in a good position, don't throw it away. You know, like mm-hmm. you said, just throw everything you've got at it. Even if the outcome isn't going to necessarily be what you want you won't walk away with that regret or, or that wonder and that question in the back of your mind of like, oh, what if I'd given it a little more? What if I hadn't hesitated? Um, mm-hmm. That's that's so much worse than throwing everything you've got at it and getting out sprinted. I mean, in that in that scenario, it's like, hey, hats off to the person who beat me because, yep. yeah. yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> and then I, I think it's natural to want to beat yourself up over those things. But even if you don't, use those as learning experiences, right? Like, mm-hmm. like to Amber's point, she said, Oh, what if, what if I just reacted quicker? It's like, okay, next time I know, you know, like coming into the sprint, I'm really on my peripheral vision, no matter how tired I am. As soon as I see somebody I'm going yeah. and, mm-hmm. and commit to that process goal, right? Like it's not, I'm going to win the sprint or I'm going to hit 1600 Watts. It's I'm going to respond as soon as I see them. I'm going to put myself yeah. in the best position to win this sprint. Cause it, yep. we train so much for this that it's, it's like second nature, right? Once you can execute, your body knows what to do. You can kind of let it take over in those scenarios. Yeah. Great insight and actionable tips for everybody from this one. Uh, this is to stick to the poker analogy, how a pair of pocket aces can beat a Royal flush. It just all comes down (laughs) to how you play it. Right. So, um, uh, let's get into rapid fire. This one's from Scott. He says, Chad style for the rest of your life, you can only choose one of three drinks to consume on the bike. Number one, beer. Number two, soda. Number three, chocolate milk. Which one do you pick and why? Just chocolate milk. Oh my gosh. That's disgusting. I, I, I'm calling it watered down Coke. That's mine. It's the watered best. It's the best thing on the bike. Yeah. So good. I was going to nerd out and just be like, well, soda's pretty much what we drink on the bike. If you get a, a sugar-based soda and flatten it, <laughs> it's pretty much a sports drink. So I'll go with soda so too. <laughs> yeah, same. Pete? 
I'm drinking beer. What is wrong with you guys? <laughs> <laughs> Good man. I'm glad that we had it. I'm glad that we had a different opinion in this one. It'll chocolate milk, I think, is just yeah. entirely off the charts for everybody. I, you cannot I, do that. No, that's the, just the chocolate milk that you like leave because I always leave water in my bottles because I'm a yeah. real human and yeah. <laughs> there's sludge in the bottom of my bottles. And so mm. imagine if you only drank chocolate milk, what that sludge would look like. Oh, uh, my God. And then. Then the the congealed stuff that spills out the top of the bottle and gets on your hands and gets on your bar tape and gets on hot your hot days hot when you days. when you spray a little yeah, X hot like beer is like way I, better I love yeah. it wow <laughs> it this went downhill so fast <laughs> that was so I, gross I, I've definitely sprayed drink mix on myself during a hot race because I didn't have any water and you just got to take what you can get sometimes and I would happily spray beer on me to that's, cool myself down that's my mom's favorite story. <laughs> One time at national championships, she was in the feed zone, and I it was hot, so I had water and Coke. Coke was for oh. the last lap, and water was for the dump. And I put the water on my bike and the Coke over my head, and it was a sticky last <laughs> lap, to say the least. Oh, gross! Yeah, but cho- chocolate milk? No, there's just there's no. never a play. Oh my gosh, hot That's rides, bird, summer no. rides, gross. Um, Sanjay says, I don't much, or I don't have much strength training equipment, but I do have 16 kilogram and 20 kilogram kettlebell. What kettlebell exercises would I benefit from doing swings, get ups? I want to get the benefits of strength training, but not destroy myself. Pete, there's like no limits to like kind of no limits to what you can do with that. Right. Yeah. And, um, I, I have two, I have like a medium kettlebell and a heavy kettlebell and I do most of my maintenance stuff with those. So I think that's exact. You have the right things. Um, the key, if if you're really worried about destroying yourself, take what you want to do, divide it by half, and then subtract 10 um, as far as starting out. Yeah, I think the math works out on that one. Maybe. But, <laughs> <laughs> Mental so, mathing right now. I'm, I'm talking start so light. Like um, Amber talked about the single-legged um, kind of bent-over bird. Uh, tippy birds. Tippy birds. Um, and so I actually do those a lot for activation and for maintenance on my off days because my hips are weak. Um, it's something in my lower back, it all helps. And so I usually just do three sets of five to 10. And on days where I feel especially throttled, I do the light kettlebell and I do three sets of five because just like Amber said in the pool analogy, I just want those five to be perfect. I want to activate everything. I want to light everything up and then continue on my way. And I still, I always want to be able to do my workouts. So, um, I would say tippy birds, um, goblet squats where you hold it in front of you, um, is very good. It's going to torch you if, if you, if you're not used to doing them. Um, (laughs) and so start with, I would even start with air squats beforehand Mm -hmm. and then work your way up, um, with strength training on the bike. There's no downside to starting too easy, especially if you're Mm -hmm. really worried about your cycling performance. Um, but Mm -hmm you'll be amazed at what your body can handle once you've conditioned it. If you're six months in or a year in, you can do huge, huge amounts of weight and volume with maintaining your cycling um, kind of trajectory. So start as easy as you can and work your way up. Um, we got I think we got to plug Derek, Derek styled health. Mm-hmm. He, he just does such a good job. And I was just talking to him about how he really found the line for road cyclists where he does the right amount so that you're not hurting yourself, but you can actually feel yourself getting fitter, which I think is awesome. And especially for most road cyclists, start start as little as you can and then work your way forward. Um, 
and it's mm-hmm. then it's sustainable too. That's yeah. dialedhealth.com or dialedhealth on Instagram because I know that people are going to be asking us to reiterate that and uh, <laughs> we say gotta it again get for him them. A so, sponsor. Um, yeah, fantastic. And also quite the trend road athlete. He's pushing for five watts per kilogram, but he just had twins. So we'll see how that goes. That'll be really tough. Um, <laughs> but he is amazing at being able to do everything. And so they'll have three kids all under the age of, I think, Otto. His other son is under the age of two still. So whew, he's going to have his hands full. But if anybody can do it, Derek can. That's for sure. So um, cool. Next one is from James. James says, I recently had a bad accident, broken clavicle, broken wrist, ugh, and reconstructive surgery on my clavicle. My PT and doctors give have given me the all clear. So I'm ready to get back on the bike after almost six months of recovery. Could you give any advice on training strategies for getting back into the swing of things? Also, can you offer any advice for mental recovery? It was a pretty gnarly crash. And as excited as I am to get back on the bike, I'm also very nervous and apprehensive about it. Um, love the podcast and hope you're all doing well during this crazy weird time. Thanks from James. Um, uh, so first, uh, Amber, you're going to add a little bit on the, the mental side, but on the mm-hmm. physical side of things, uh, James, it's, it's all about going off of how you feel. You really have to pay attention to your body. Um, when you have an injury and I know that you haven't injured a leg or a lower extremity, but the thing is you've still probably developed imbalances, uh, atrophy, weakness, everything else is a result of the injury. So it's really about taking your time and working your way through things. Um, so what that probably looks like, I know this sounds crazy is taking a ramp test. Um, but that ramp test will put you where you need to be. It will probably be a lower number than you hope for. And that's great because that's going to put you where you want to be. Remember the ramp test is a snapshot of your fitness currently. And it's, and it's a great way to get a benchmark that's going to be productive for you. So that's what I'd recommend. There's no necessary need for you to ride before you train. So to speak, you can get into it just as long as it's at the proper intensity and you're being able to work through it, but absolutely listen to your body. Uh, if you're on the fence between a training volume, pick a lower volume right now, give your body some time to be able to get used to that, um, and get back into things. Uh, what about on the mental side, Amber, coming back from something so traumatic as this? Yeah, I think that's, that's probably the harder part of it. I mean, the physical side can be fairly straightforward as, you know, be very progressive, um, with how you're stepping yourself back into training. But the bigger part of this, like you mentioned in your question is that, you know, you're nervous and apprehensive about it. And that's perfectly natural because what happens is your autonomic nervous system, your body records this traumatic memory as a part of your survival mechanism, your body's trying to keep you alive. So it's trying to prevent you from doing similar things that might put you in danger. And so one of the things that you're going to want to work on is kind of rewiring that system and creating positive associations with the bike. So that one incident was, you know, let's face it, it's traumatic. And so your autonomic nervous system is going to, is going to seize on that and, and look at the bike as a, an association with danger. And so what you really want to do is start to gently, progressively over time, it's not going to happen instantaneously, be patient with yourself, but you want to start to create positive associations with the bike. So this would look like doing routes that are really familiar, that feel very safe and are very enjoyable and being out on the bike and just feeling safe on the bike, feeling in control of the bike enjoying it, creating happy memories on the bike so that you're just creating these positive associations. And if you find your mind going to thoughts of fear, 
and anxiety, um, a mantra can really help with that. Finding a positive mantra to just sort of calm your brain and bring it back to something positive or constructive that you can focus on. So kind of using some gentle exposure back to the bike, you know, don't go bomb a descent. Don't go ride where you crashed. Um, give yourself some time to build back a positive association and then gently start to step back into the things that were initially giving you anxiety, but don't do it too soon. Like you don't have mm. to push that. In fact, if you really push that front of it, it's extremely counterproductive. This is not one of those times where, you know, like, oh, I'm just going to go be super tough and like force myself to go relive that place where I crashed. Like, no, it's not going to work. That's just not how we're wired. But the one thing to do to, to understand about how we are wired is your fear and anxiety are very natural. And this is part of your body trying to keep you alive. So that means everything's working as intended. It doesn't mean that you are weak or you're not tough enough or anything like that. This is exactly how our brains are wired. It's a good thing. And you just need to work with it instead of fighting it. Um, another great resource I'll recommend is a website called Injured Athletes Toolbox. And the woman who runs it, Heidi, is brilliant. She's been through her fair share of injuries, but she's kind of laid out a roadmap for athletes who are coming back from injury. And she really addresses this mental and emotional side of it exceptionally well. So um, even just going to her website and reading through it can be very healing. So I would highly recommend checking that out. Awesome. Uh, let's go down into Yvonne's question. Um, Yvonne says, Hey everyone, I wanted to start by saying how much I enjoy the podcast and how much I've learned. <clears throat> Forgive me. Uh, she says, my question is the following. I'm struggling with nutrition. I might need to gain weight, uh, but I struggle with the idea. I've noticed how, when I eat, ride, eat during rides, I feel better and heard you guys repeating the 90 grams per hour. Would that include all riders? I'm five foot two and I weigh about 108 or so. Um, and then kind of related another question, the 90 grams per hour, is that during the hour drinking while riding or small bites here and there? Or is it more like after the first hour, start taking 90 grams, uh, to cover for the upcoming hour, Yvonne, bless you. You're thinking too much about this. Um, so, um, uh, no, so, you're thinking uh, just the right amount about, that. yeah, sorry. Yeah. Uh, this is Alex. Yeah. Um, so it's just take it in as you feel throughout the time and you don't have to wait. You don't have to take it in at hour intervals. This is just you taking it in as you can. And as you wish to, uh, 90 grams per hour. So Alex, you mentioned this It was a great point on the other podcast, um, just a couple, uh, just a little bit ago, but basically, uh, you mentioned the fact that if you're, if you look at it, the caloric burn that you're actually doing during a workout is probably a lot higher than you can take in. If you're an athlete that has an FTP, that's over 200 Watts, right? Um, it gets tough. Um, if you're taking in something that's like, a, or if you're doing like 140 Watts for an hour, then you might be getting to the point where something around there is evening you out. So it's like an even intake. So yeah, in, in your situation, Yvonne, it might, you might not need to be at 90 grams per hour, start lower, work your way up and uh, keep track of how many kilojoules you're expending on the bike with your workouts. Keep track of how many calories you're taking in. Uh, if you want to balance that because Yvonne, it seems like you're very much within this, this lane of wanting to make sure that system of checks and balances is there. So that's the best way to do it. Um, 90 grams per hour. The reason that it's referenced so commonly is because in research that has been referenced as a tipping point where that's as much as your body can absorb. Um, so, uh, before we jump into any more on this one, I'm going to keep it short, but I am going to say we have a science of getting faster episode that is entirely dedicated to basically this exact thing. And it's super good. So, um, stay tuned for that. It's with Dr. Tim Podlogar. So, or Podlogar, forgive me. That's how you'd say it. Um, so 
Yeah. Uh, he is. Yeah. <laughs> big Carba. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, fantastic. Um, on that one. Okay. Devin, and we'll do this one really quick, uh, because Pete requested it. He says, uh, hello, really enjoying your podcast. Looking for a point of reference as far as power output. I'm 180 pound male, 28 years old. I've been riding for about a year and I want to start racing crits. What kind of power should I be able to put out to be a competitive rider? It varies, right? Pete doesn't, it varies uh, it's like 300 yeah. Watts. <clears throat> yeah. And I think that's the common misconception that we can dispel right now. Um, a criterium is, uh, a, a very spiky, lots of hard efforts and lots of easy efforts and lots of something in between. And probably the average power output for the whole thing is probably 300 Watts or something along those lines. But the way you get there is much different. So if you look at our criterium specialty plans, they're all, um, all of the kind of final workouts to get you ready are all on offs in varying short durations. So when you think about it, that going very hard for 20 seconds and going easy for 10 or 20, that's what a criterium is. And then, withstanding those efforts, that's what makes you able to race our criterium. It's not being able to put out 300 Watts for an hour. So start, start framing, make sure that you can go very hard, harder than you want to go and way harder than you ride when you're by yourself and are able to recover fairly quickly and do it over again. And that's going to get you more capable of riding a criterium than doing a steady 300 watt hour, um, every single time. Nailed it. Nice job, Pete. Um, okay. Now we're, believe it or not, we're out of the rapid fire section. Now we're going to do two more. And then hopefully, uh, within this, these two, um, we can get through these ones, uh, and then hopefully get to some live questions. So if you're joining us live, please throw them in. So we'll cover this one kind of pseudo rapid fire. Uh, sound good host, fellow hosts. Um, this one's from Caleb says possibly a rapid fire question. How can I train skills for gravel racing? Furthermore, how can I improve my efficiency on loose, chunky gravel roads with undulating hills, particularly with cornering and descending? Can't begin to express my appreciation for the work everyone at Trainer Road does and how it has made me faster. Five stars as always. And thank you to everyone here at Trainer Road, the designers, the engineers, the product managers, the everybody, support staff, um, Audrey, our assistant, Tori, everybody. Thank you. You're all awesome. And you don't get enough recognition. So um, I appreciate you. Okay. So, uh, gravel, pr- gravel handling. I hear this sometimes. Like I, in fact, I even saw something the other day that was like, it was an Instagram ad and it was like gravel handling clinic. It's not just mountain biking. And I want to be like, yo, like get out of here with that. <laughs> like, Cause like it's the same principles. It's not like it's an entirely different world. You just have to look at what you're constrained by. Your bike doesn't have suspension. It doesn't have high volume tires. It doesn't have the, 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 geometry that's going to be able to allow you to, I guess, have a bigger margin of error. In other words, same principles. You just have to walk a finer line. That's the only thing, which is why I do not understand for the life of me. While people are like, I'm a road rider and I'm afraid of riding dirt. So I'm going to ride gravel. Just get a mountain bike. It'll make you way more comfortable. (laughs) And I don't know. Anyways, gravel is crazy to me. So, but with that, the main things that you have to look at with gravel is the fact that you have limited traction and your bike is a bad handling bike compared to what it could be like a mountain bike. Those are the two things, but the principles are the same. Um, one of the, and the principles, if you want to go into that, go look at how to be a better mountain biker. We have a video on YouTube with Lee McCormick. He is the shred shaman, the spiritual enduro (laughs) bro that can guide you through anything. And he is incredible. Um, and I'm sure he's listening and or watching to this right now. So thank you, Lee, for all you do. Uh, he goes through positioning and theory and, a whole lot of things that might unlock a lot of riding for you and make uh, connect feeling to actual things that you see on the trail. He's just incredible with it. Um, but I think one of the main things that I see scaring people on gravel bikes, because once again, your bike doesn't handle well and you're limited by traction 
two bad things. It causes you to skid and skidding is usually on a road bike. That means that you are going down. Like it is so rare when you skid on a road bike and you aren't on the ground right after that. Right. Um, that's a very rare occurrence. So loss of traction is terrifying to most people that are going to gravel because it's, they have this kind of like what you mentioned, Amber, like this kind of like this, um, response that you've built up to that over time, Mm -hmm. where that is a clear signal that danger is imminent and it's about to hurt really badly. So you have that built in and then you get on a gravel bike, it loses traction everywhere. It can't hold traction. So suddenly you feel like you're dying every 10 feet on the trail. It's not a good thing. So you have to get to the point where basically you have to familiarize yourself with that. And you do that just like Amber said, and working your way up in increments. Um, but loss of traction is going to happen on gravel. It's just going to happen, but it also doesn't mean the end of the day. It just is part of it. Um, in fact, if you can get to the point where you actually get comfortable with it, like Pete, Alex, myself, we can, we use that. That's a tool in our toolbox. And it's really comforting actually, because I'm always a little nervous when I when I have traction, I know this sounds weird, but when I'm on a gravel bike and I'm on like a fire road descent, I'm more nervous when I do have traction and I'm less nervous when I don't, because once the slide has started, I know what's going to happen and I know how things are going on and I know that it is sliding, but if I'm braking and it's not sliding, then I'm like, when is this tipping point going to come in? When is it going to happen? And is it going to happen in the wrong way? So it's kind of like a rally car driver they would much rather drift their way through a turn because they can control that. Whereas if they're trying to hold traction, they can't really control that. There are too many factors that influence that. So, you know, there's part of it. Number one, when you're talking about gravel bikes, it's getting comfortable with being uncomfortable, AKA skidding. That's one thing that you'll have to do for sure. Um, uh, sorry, I probably went too long on that, but Alex, uh, what would you add to this? I'm just going to go back to riding the bike that you want to be fast on. So, Um, there's different advantages, like you said, coming from different disciplines, coming from a road discipline, you're already used to the handlebars, that position, no narrower Q factor, any of the things that change fit wise. So there's an advantage there to being comfortable in that position. Every time I get on my gravel bike from the mountain bike, it definitely feels different. So just being able to, to ride is like one less barrier to when you get to the trails, you already feel comfortable on it. You're not like fighting the bike as well. Um, And then it is just time. And we talked about working on skills mountain biking the last time I was on the podcast, but just focusing on one thing at a time can be super helpful. Breaking it down like, okay, this time I'm really going to focus on loose corners. And, you know, like you said, maybe go through that corner with your finger on the rear brake and just trying to break traction, just waiting for that rear tire to skid out a little bit. Okay, you know, good. And then let go as soon as it breaks traction and then hit it. And... Funny enough, this is actually a technique that I've seen riders use on mountain bike courses. They'll come Mm -hmm. around a corner and they'll feather their brake to see how much traction they really have in that corner until they break traction. And then once they break traction, it's like, okay, there's the line. So for race day, they know exactly where it is. So a mix of that and, and just mastering the skills you need to be good at gravel, right? It like if you have a fire road, you know, you, you could even do your, your intervals up and down that fire road just to be riding on the terrain and getting used to how those tires react. But you can also geek out on the tires, right? Like mess around with some tire pressure because you don't have suspension, you know, mess around with tread, get a bigger tread tire if you don't feel like you have enough tread. And it's just time on that bike will go a long way. Mm-hmm. 
I wanted to mention one thing. <clears throat> it's everything you're trying to do is to make your so you're able to predict what your bike and you are able to do. Um, and as someone who came later to mountain biking, um, if I'm able to predict what any any off road bicycle is going to do, I'm able to maximize on my on my time and cornering and speed and everything. So it's when you can't predict and you're not sure what your bike or your tires are going to do. That's when you start slowing down. And in a race, that's the last thing you want. So the more time and the more effort and the more familiar you are with, with what your bike is going to do, the faster you're going to be able to race it. Just like the rally car drivers, they're able to predict what their car is going to do. And that's how they're fast. They're not fast because, um, they're they're just innately good at this thing. No, there's a predictable a predictability, and they're maximizing on what they're able to predict. Mm-hmm. Right, everything that they're doing, even though it may seem like it's just on the edge of control, is a hundred percent in their control because they know exactly how the machine is going to respond. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great points, Amber. How about you? I would just say, you know, make sure that you schedule and set aside time to work exclusively on skills. Uh, cause I think that a, a common misconception is if I just go ride my bike, I'm going to learn how to do the things. And that's true to an extent. Every time you ride your bike, you're going to learn how to do it better. That's a fact, but you can really accelerate the learning process. If you actually take at least one day a week, if, you know, if this is your focus, I would say, take a day a week where you're not doing intervals. You're not trying to get a certain amount of time on the bike, but you're setting aside maybe an hour or two where you're literally only going to work on skills. So you're super mentally fresh. You could be really focused. Um, and this would look like doing really simple drills or going out and finding a, a section of trail or, or dirt road where you can session particular types of terrain and then practice certain skills. And you want to make sure that you're doing this, you know, very, very progressively. So a couple of drills, um, as an example would be, ratcheting because if, especially if you're a roadie going to dirt and I'm speaking from experience, um, it can be easy to forget that you can actually continue to create forward momentum without doing a full pedal stroke revolution. And that's a really handy thing when you're on a trail where there might be some rocks or logs that you could potentially catch a pedal on if you were trying to do a complete pedal stroke. Um, doing things like practicing front end lifts or back end lifts, and even turning that into a bunny hop. And so a way of progressing that, for example, would be to get a towel and roll it up on the ground and try lifting your front end over that, you know, and then once you get comfortable with that or bunny hopping that, then you can remove the towel and then do a small stick and then a bigger stick or go from a rope to a small curb to a bigger curb. Uh, So making sure that you're building your confidence and you're doing so progressively. And another thing that you can try, especially for gravel that I found um, helps a lot from the road to dirt is reminding yourself of how very far forward on the bike you can go and how very far back on the bike you can go. You can shift your weight super far forward and super far back. And when you're when you're on dirt, the terrain and the, and there, there's a lot more variability in traction, but there's a lot more variability in gradient too. And so moving yourself forward on the bike, if you're on a really steep uphill or move yourself back on the bike, if you're on a really steep downhill, um, it's surprising as a roadie to realize how far back over your rear wheel you can be and still be really stable. So practicing that in a safe environment, like practicing, moving really far forward, really far back, on maybe just like a grassy field and then taking that to a section of uphill or downhill that you can just session over and over and feel how your bike responds when you're moving your weight forward, when you're going uphill or moving it back when you're going downhill. And those are really basic things. But if you take the time to do that when you're mentally fresh and you can really absorb those lessons, then when you go out and do your three hour ride or your two hour ride, 
those are going to come much more naturally to you and you can integrate them in a really, really constructive manner. So, um, mm -hmm. again, you want to do that progressively, maybe start on a fire road. That's pretty tame. Then go to a solidly constructed trail and then maybe try some, some class four, dirt roads up in Vermont, which can get pretty gnarly. But again, you want to make it progressive. So you're really getting the hang of it, building your confidence and then challenging yourself at an appropriate rate. Find a skills clinic, uh, Yeti, Betty, uh, Sarah Raleigh and, and, and a bunch of gals. They're awesome that put together these clinics that travel around and do that sort of a thing. It's awesome. Um, Lee is always doing clinics do that. It, it helps a lot. So yeah. Um, okay. Cole's last question that we're going to cover. I don't know if we're going to be able to cover the live ones. If we don't, I'm going to put some of them into the queue for next week. So submit those questions if you are joining us live on YouTube right now. Okay. So Cole says is one week between large races enough time to recover. There are two races I want to do. Number one, the Wasatch all road. And he mentions the full Yeti version, August 28th. And I guess that's a free drink or free bingo card. If you're playing that game, uh, a hundred miles, uh, it's 12,000 feet of climbing and it's about 80% gravel. Highest point is 10,060 feet. Sounds cool. And if it's Wasatch, I assume that means that it's in Utah. Um, so that I did not know that event existed. Uh, Rebecca, Rebecca rushes private Idaho French fry, September 5th, 56 miles, 4,386 feet of climbing and 80% gravel. So actually pretty similar in terms of the proportion of climbing uh, to distance. And it's just more or less half the width or half the length. And those are spread out by just about a week. So now to give you context, I'm new to cycling, only eight months. Overweight uh, is what uh, Cole says at five foot seven inches, 94 kilograms, but I've lost 60 pounds over the past year. Way to go, Cole. And I'm just looking to finish as these will be my very first races. I've been using Trainer Road since November and loving it. And the podcast has helped a newbie like me so much. So thank you all. So I actually think this is a good scenario. I, I don't know about the rest of you, but um, like yeah. a big race and that's your A race. And then after that, you have like the schools out for summer vibe event that you get to have fun at and utilize all that hard work that you did. Um, I guess, and that would mean I'm implying there that you prioritize between them. You make one of them your A race and one of them, them your B race. Um, I would always, if it's a week apart, I would prioritize the first one just because you never know what could happen to that first race. And it would be a shame if that first one was your B race and it threw out your, your A race later on. So I would prioritize that first one being the A race. Um, but it's probably, I mean, he's going to be well-prepared because similar demands and it's probably enough time to recover in between, right? Amber, uh, the two, yeah. ev two events. Yeah. Especially between one day events, even if they're really big, massive events, um, one week is plenty of time to recover fully, especially since you will have built up so much fitness going into your a race and tapered. Um, we've talked about this before. A peak isn't just one day. It can last weeks. So chances are, you know, those two rate for both of those races, the haze in the barn. And so your big focus between them is to go ahead and rest and recover and just do enough speed work enough, um, on the bike to make sure that your legs are still sharp for the next, for the next event. But really it's all about sleeping well, eating really well, um, focusing on your well-being that week. So plan ahead for that week and make sure that you're not taking on any additional obligations that aren't necessary and really focus, you know, try to set that week aside as being focused on recovery, but for sure it's plenty of time to come back and be fresh the next weekend. I just want to reiterate something that Amber hinted at there. You are not going to get a lot faster. You aren't going to be able to make a lot right. of improvements in that week. <laughs> There's so you're not going to gain any fitness in one no. week between events. It's not going to happen. <laughs> so especially when your body is dosed with a lot of fatigue from a big, long event, then you're really not going to be able to make any sort of, so don't worry about that. 
instead focus on the recovery and race prioritization should be something that we should talk about here. We get this question quite a lot and I, you don't have to prioritize your races. You can try to race everything, but as Pete and I talked about earlier, then we would just explode. We would physically explode because we just race everything that we could as hard as we could. And then we would be really slow. So, um, it's it racing so is fun, though. I just would be so fun for a while and then it wouldn't be fun anymore. Yeah. But, um, this, uh, racing is a training interruption. Uh, now it can be a very intentional and productive training interruption, but it can also get to the point where it isn't a productive training interruption and it actually holds you back. I think we all have realized that over the past year in the sense that we didn't have these events and wow, our training has been really good. Uh, we were able to stay on track. It's amazing. So, uh, but it does benefit you to prioritize your races a lot. The reason that you want to prioritize races, if you can actually pick something, then that allows you to be very specific about your preparation. I know this sounds really obvious, but we, we miss these points when we start thinking about, Ooh, well, maybe I could do this race and this race and this race. And they're all a races, but instead we're best when we can specialize at something and we can really focus on something. And if you want to grow yourself as an athlete, that specialization is where it really happens, especially if you are picking areas that might be a little outside of your wheelhouse. And Remember, you're not paid to be a pro bike racer, so you get to pick whatever events you want and be whatever racer you want. Well, not all of us. Sorry, Alex. (laughs) But those of us, uh, most of us that are listening to this. Um, But we have a blog post on this on race prioritization that you should check out. We'll link to it in the description below. You can also just Google race prioritization or race priority on our blog, and you'll be able to find everything there. Um, and there, and there are dangers to doing multiple a events when they're too close together. And I think a lot of that actually just comes from our own expectations though. Uh, if you have an A event and then you have something that you hope to be able to, and you've built up for that, and then you hope to be able to just be right back into winning form once again, like Amber said, you can recover in a week in between events, depending on the event, that's no issue. But in terms of a specialized build into something, and then you have another event that's entirely different, that can be really tough. It doesn't mean that you're just going to be able to translate all of that fitness that's specific over to something else. And it's for that reason why plan builder has you space these things out. Cause plan builders intent is to build you up for a specific peak. Um, or if you're not training for an event for a specific type of riding and just build you up in that direction. And, uh, as a result, we want to reach the highest of highs. So that's why we have you doing that. Um, right. Alex, the, the plan builder, oh, sorry, oh, I was just going to say plan builder handles, handles an A event. The, the mentality of that is that the goal is to build up your fitness and then peak you for that event. If you have A events too closely spaced, there's just not enough time to build up fitness between them. So in this case, there's two events one week apart. You're not going to build fitness between them, but it doesn't mean that you can't have amazing legs at both. So in terms of your training plan, it's about whether or not you're building fitness or just recovering into the event. And that's, I think that's the key difference here. Mm-hmm. Do you have anything to add, Alex? I don't know if I saw you raise your hand on this one. Yeah, I was just going to summarize for Cole. Like, although you put Rebecca Rush's Private Idaho as a B, you have this the right way around in my mind. Like, you have that big race first, and you get through that, mm-hmm. and, you know, nothing nothing happens. Like, fingers crossed, it just goes according to plan, and, and you had a great time, and you finished, and you do this recovery to Amber's point, you can come into the private Idaho with just as good legs or sometimes even better because people peak different ways. So as you're new to cycling, you'll learn how your body reacts to this. Like Amber and I have talked about this before. Amber takes a week off and can perform. If I take a week off, it's just like a noodle. 
So, <laughs> and this is what you'll learn about yourself. And I think that's exciting in itself is like, okay, I'm going to do this hundred mile race and I'm going to try to, you know, recover the way that, you know, is standard and works for a lot of people and see how it works for me. Do I feel blocked on Rebecca's Russia's private Idaho? I couldn't get going till two hours in. Okay. Maybe I need a little more intensity or I came into it too tired. Maybe those tune up workouts, I need to either minimize them or do less sets. And, and you can kind of tweak this so that you can come into these with pretty similar fitness. But I agree with if you're going to choose an A race, it should be that first one. It's the bigger one. It's harder on, on paper. And since it comes first, it doesn't allow another event to get in the way. And then that way, it sets you up to have them as both A, if everything goes according to plan. Because if you sacrificed that 100 mile and didn't do it to your full extent and then came into private Idaho as an A, there's no way to make that an AA situation. Yes. Yeah. Well said, Alex. Uh, well, perfect. That covers it for this week. We're not going to get to live questions. Uh, we've, uh, producer Aaron, thank you so much for adding them in to the doc. I will, we'll bring those into to next week's episode so that we can answer a good portion of those. So thanks for doing that. And thanks for joining us on YouTube. If you are joining us now, please thumbs up. That will help other cyclists get that. So you can give us a thumbs up, hit the notification bell as well. So then that way, when we post videos, which we do every day, you can see those videos post up, follow us on TikTok. We're always posting content on there, on Instagram, everywhere else. And if you do all that, you're going to be looped in and always being surrounded by content that makes you faster. It pushes you toward the faster point. So, and of course, go to trainer road and sign up, submit your questions at trainerroadcom slash podcast and listen to the successful athletes podcast at trainerroadcom slash S A P. Thanks everybody. We'll talk to you next week. Bye everyone. Bye. Everyone. Bye.